go to the best Bible school, the best business school in the whole wide world, they're probably not going to tell you that you should pray in tongues before breakfast and that'll fix up your day. And so I uh, really appreciate Paul and the journey that he's had with the Lord and business and all that. Uh, turn, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Now, um, the, probably the, the, if you are a business person, let me just give you this little caveat from me to you. Um, uh, Luke chapter 12 should be as a business person. Luke chapter 12 should be the scripture that you have memorized by heart. Because there's a lot of things that are in there that are God's uh, voice or God's message to people who are really going after a life of abundance. And so um, make a note to yourself. I can promise you, if you get to have a life of abundance, if you pursue this and you get into that spot, this will be the scripture that's part of your first few days in heaven. These will be the markers by which your life is being measured. Everybody is going to be measured by these, particularly North Americans. But if you are a North American and you desire to live a life of abundance, then even more so, this has to be part of your constant filters in your soul. It's like when I'm talking to people who want to be ministers and I make sure that they understand the scripture about a millstone and if you cause another to stumble, then better a millstone be tied around your neck and you be cast into the lake. Remember that scripture? And so if you become a minister or all of your lives where you realize the importance of the life you live and the example your life is to other people, cause them to stumble. This Luke chapter 12 is that same scripture for business people. And so let me just, I'm going to wander through it, but you should be really focused on it to go home after that and say, okay, let me read through this and make sure that this is part of my reality. So the, 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 the scripture starts off by Jesus talking about somebody who harvests greatly. And if you recognize that scripture at all or that, that banner that's behind me, we're desiring to go into that place of harvesting greatly. Or, let's put it this way, harvesting an, an, an amounts that are well excessive of what you need in your personal life. And Jesus says here, uh, this is the man, this is the plentiful harvester guy. Uh, and the, uh, in verse 16 there, the ground of a certain man yielded plentifully, and he thought to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room for all of my crops? And so he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater barns. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, finally, you've reached your time of retirement. And I'm so grateful that you can relax and move to Florida. No offense to Florida. No, God said this. He said, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will be those things which you have provided or which you have heaped up to yourself? So what's the warning there that God is giving us? And it's going to be very, very careful. If you are raised in a religious environment, I can almost promise you that you understand this scripture incorrectly. Because there hasn't really been a revelation of the kingdom as it applies to your life financially, not just in how much money do you bring into your offering plate. 
But instead of that, understanding it from the perspective of a business person, anointed of the spirit, to be a business person, to be a kingdom-minded person out there serving the needs and the and the satisfying, solving problems out there for somebody in the marketplace. And so then, then he goes on. If that wasn't really the scripture I wanted to get to, I want to get to the one if in verse 31. Now remember. The, the, the Gospels kind of repeat themselves because these guys, a couple of the guys who wrote the Gospels traveled with Jesus. And so you're hearing here then in verse 31, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. You probably hearken that back to Matthew chapter six. So that kind of gives you context as to where Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the kingdom and he's talking about how operating in the ways of the kingdom are going to create this environment where all these things will be added to you. And so there, we're talking there about a life of abundance and, and a life where there is a continual flow of the resources and the blessings of God that are flowing into your life. Um, but then listen to this. And do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not that God is holding back, as you probably, probably many of you realize now. The kingdom is not a complex place. The kingdom is for people who come as children. It's not complicated to walk in the kingdom or the ways of the kingdom. And God is desiring to give us at the very, 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 very leading edge of what we can, what we can, uh, what we can receive. And so it's always that place. The more you are seeking, the more you're going to be receiving from the Lord. It's, he's not holding anything back. It's more our ability to chew it and swallow it that is creating the gateway for us. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where thief approaches nor, uh, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is what I wanted to draw your attention to. Verse 35, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return for, from the wedding. That when he comes and knocks, they may, they may open to him immediately. So there in the life of abundance, there is a reality on the inside of us that has to always be on the inside of us that says, I am about to go and meet Jesus. I'm about to go and give an account. That's what he begins to talk about in this next section where the master has gone away and he requires of his servants that we were doing the will of the master. And then verse 48, this is, my, this is now my caveat to you and the one that you should, if you believe in tattoos, you should have it tattooed on you. I don't, but verse 48 says, but he who did not know, and that is the will of the, fa the, the, will of the master and being committed to those things, yet committed these things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with a few. For every one whom much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. And what's that talking about? That, that's talking about God's desire, God's providential ability to bring each of you into the place where you're hearing and understanding revelation in a very specific way. If God would have sent you to a different church, then you would be hearing different understandings of things. Because God brought you to this place, and this is the assignment that's on my life, then God intentionally is bringing you into these things so that you can understand how 
the world was created to manifest abundance in your life. But the caveat to that is that just like everything else that we're given by the Lord, everything that we're given is for a purpose. That's the misunderstanding of the, of the guy with the barns, the fool with the barns. He didn't realize that what he had been given, his excessive harvest that he received, was given to him for him to do something with it. It wasn't to be put into barns. <clears throat> I had this conversation a couple of, this is last summer now, with a, with a anyways, it doesn't matter who it was, with this person, Trump was running for uh, office. He, hasn't, he hadn't received the presidency yet. And the discussion that I was having with this person was about, this person also has a heart for Africa and all of those type of things. And their comment was, I don't know why people like Trump don't just take their money and go and solve the problems, give it to the people who don't have any money over in Africa. How many of you think that's a good thing that people should think? Now, you're going to not put your hand up, but we have to focus on why that isn't a good thing. It's not that I don't care about poor people or the underprivileged. Of course, with what I do, that's what I care about the most. The problem is the mindset of that is wrong. When somebody has the mindset that's wrong about money then they don't understand how to make money. They don't understand how money works. They don't even understand what it is. Let's take a look at a couple of the premises that are behind what that person said. Number one, they think, they were talking about Trump at the time, so Trump and his $10 billion, that was kind of all the news at the time. Her understanding of Trump and his money was that Trump's money was where? in his bank account, or in Luke chapter 12 terms, that his money was in his barn. And that all he was doing was he was sitting on top of a pile of gold that was, that was downstairs in his basement. That is their understanding. That's most people's understanding of rich people. And so because of that, they conceptualize that why doesn't he just stop sitting on this pile of gold and go do something with it? not realizing that they are doing something with it. Probably, you know, like I tell people, if you want to be a rich man, don't expect to have a million dollars in the bank. I'm not saying don't have a million dollars. I'm saying don't expect to have it in the bank. Because money that's in the bank, it's in a barn, it's waiting, it's doing nothing. You've buried it in the backyard or stuck it in the mattress. That money isn't doing anything. What God's intention for us when we get excessive harvests is that those harvests will be reinvested. They will be, when we take a look at Corinthians chapter 2, he says that there's two reasons that you get a harvest. One, bread for food. Two, seed to sow. That doesn't always mean that that seed to sow is encumbering it as an offering into your church. Now, you ought to do that because of the, the, the call of God that is upon your life, but that's not specifically what that scripture is talking about. It's not exclusively what that is talking about. As a business person, our job is to make excessive harvests. They call that profit. When you make excessive harvests, what, you're, what you have to learn to do in the meantime is go to God and find out, why did you give me this excessive harvest? It isn't providentially, it isn't because you're awesome. 
and God wants you to sit back with a barn full of money and relax and take it easy for the rest of your life. That's how most people think about money. If I had a million dollars, what would I do? I would go to Florida and I would take it easy for the rest of my life. Now, again, I'm not criticizing Florida. I'm trying to show you that there is a mindset about the way people think about money that prevents them from ever having any. And the, the number one problem that people have is that when they get more money, they feel their number one priority is increasing their lifestyle and spending habits. That isn't necessary to do that. From a business perspective, if your first thought, if I gave you $1,000 right now, if your first thought would be to go and spend it upon yourself, now, then I'm not your, you're not going to come and do penance with me. If that is your thought then what happens is, is you have to begin to change the way you think about money. The reason rich people have money is because they have abundant ways of thinking. We all know this from Proverbs 23, that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so what we're going to look at today, <clears throat> let me tell you another story. <coughs> Excuse me. A few weeks ago, months ago now, I had the opportunity, I have one, but I also have had a quad shot latte this morning, and so I've got, I got a whole throat full of cream, which I'm trying to process right now. Um, if only we could make the decision just to stop that, eh? So what do you think about it? One of these days, may the Lord be praised. Uh, where was I? So I'm sitting the other day, this is a couple months ago now, Bishop Tommy Reed, who's with us next month, by the way, praise the Lord, make sure you're here. Um, uh, he invited me to come to lunch with him. We were going to go to visit the Albright Knox Art, Modern Art Museum. And so he calls me up and says, are you doing anything right now? And I said, no. And he says, okay, let's go to an art museum. And I thought, oh, if I could only take back the no. <laughs> and so anyway, so anyway, so I meet him there and we walk in the door and he says to me as I'm going in the door, I said, by the way, we're going to have lunch before we take a trip through the art gallery. And we're going to have lunch with Seymour Knox. Seymour Knox is the Knox part of Albright Knox Art Museum. And so we sat down. I was kind of a little bit, okay, I'm really interested in meeting this guy, particularly with the concept that I'm going to be talking with you about this morning, afternoon, evening. The, uh, uh, and so I was super excited about being able to sit down with him I was really expecting that there was going to be sort of an entourage that would come in first. You know, they would lay down this carpet for him, and, <laughs> and then there may be a few white horses would draw him in on a carriage or something of that nature, was my expectation. And so all of a sudden, we're kind of sitting, we'd already sat down at this little restaurant, you know, little coffee table kind of a thing, where we're going to have lunch in the museum there. And uh, this fellow comes up behind me, and he says, hello. And just a regular guy in a regular blue suit and, you know, tall, skinny kind of fella, you know, whatever. And he says, hi there, I'm Seymour. Just in a regular way that you would come and say hi to each other on a, on a, on a Sunday morning. And then we sat down together, and I was kind of like, okay, <clears throat> that's kind of cool. You know, he's got this whole, you know, down with the regular <laughs> folk kind of thing happening. And... Uh, so then we sat down to lunch and we had a great conversations and I just, I learned like an, 
just an enormous, you can imagine me at that moment, uh, gathering all the data that I'm going to process and analyze at a later date as we're chatting through lunch and then taking probably a four-hour tour through everything Picasso ever did. And so I took the time to talk with Seymour since I couldn't have cared any less about the paintings and things like that. Not my thing. Not that I don't think it's a thing, it's just not my thing. And so, uh, anyway, and talking about the economics, because really what I wanted to know was, what is the economics around artwork? Because I knew something from the very first question that I asked that afternoon, that nobody cares about modern art. At least not, I mean, the patrons do, but the owners don't. The owners, they, they care about the financial reality of modern art. That's what I learned very quickly that day, which is a great thing to learn. We'll discuss it another time. What I did learn is what I'd like to speak to you guys about today. And that is, <clears throat> how do rich people think? Let's not say rich. Rich is a really bad word. Yeah, good for you, Mike. How do abundant people think? If you want to be an abundant person, you must first know how to think like an abundant person. And we're going to discuss a bunch of things today. Some of them are probably going to be a bit shocking to you, but I can absolutely promise you that for the vast majority of the people in the room today, you all don't think like abundant people. And the first thing that you need to do is not be offended with me when I say that. Because the way abundant people think is radically different than the way normal, the masses think. And in order for you to become an abundant person, you must change the relationship that you have with money and resources. If you don't change the relationship that you have, you're just going to remain a person who thinks about money in a normal, average person way, and then your financial reality or your ability in that area is not ever going to change. Thinking like a regular person, a middle class, let's say, person. This is I know I'm sounding very rude here in the way that I'm speaking, but... Let me back up. I believe that this next move of God, the next hundred years in the kingdom, what we will a hundred years from now refer to as the apostolic season, the reformation of the apostolic ministry, that we are only in the, you know, we are still in the foolishness stage of that revelation where everybody's scampering around trying to figure out what that is and trying to get, you know, put themselves in position and all of this kind of human thing that goes on at the beginnings of things. But when we get to the 100 years, if any of you are still here then, you will look back on the apostolic movement and you will say that the, the one of the number one things that it accomplished in the world is it accomplished the resurrection of the Christian entrepreneurial person who learned how to use the principles of the kingdom of God to build 
world-class businesses. In order for us to do that, I'm absolutely certain that that's what's going to happen. Whether we participated in it or not, that's up to us. But that's the purpose of God. Can I tell you, Timothy says that that money is the root of all evil. Do you know that the Bible says that? Does anybody know what it does say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Now, can I tell you something? I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do all the etymology of those words. But when you take a look at that word love, that word means to be highly attracted to shiny things. It's a word that says to be phileo, which means brotherly love or affection, a desire, an affectionate desire for something. And the word argos, it's, the, it's a derivative of the word argos. The word argos means silver or shiny things. So that word, the love of money, means to have a phileo relationship with shiny things. That means your soul is very attracted to shiny things. And so when you take a look at the dynamic, we really shouldn't even say the love of money. Although that's true, that's that's what the words mean. I believe that that scripture is talking, even though it doesn't sound like it's talking about it, that scripture is talking about poverty or a lack mentality. I learned that, I learned that, but then I heard it when I was speaking to Seymour Knox. When you have an abundant mindset, now Seymour is the third generation of the Knox family. The Knox family made their money with Woolworths. Do any of you people who have hair color like me, right? Woolworths was the original Walmart. They they were the original department store in the middle of every single little town across North America. He's the third generation Seymour Knox. And so he has always grown up. I'll just give you a little bit of an idea of who these people are. He said that there isn't a Picasso, not any image created by Picasso that is worth less than a million dollars. And he said, we have 60 of them. (laughs) He said that there's this guy, I don't know who he is, Clifford Stein. Oh, let me tell you the other one. Do you know the guy that just throws the paint at the wall? No offense to modern artists. Jackson Pollock is the fellow's name. Well, I stood in front of this picture. It was probably the size of, twice the size, three, four times the size of that whiteboard. No offense to my precious whiteboard. (laughs) And he said to me, he said, that picture and its sister, which is right below you, we actually were standing on this little pad, and he says, that's the the elevator right there to the vault. So the vault is underneath the the museum, just in case you ever wanted to do a Ocean's Eleven or something like that. (laughs) 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 And he said, that and its sister, which is down in the basement, are worth $150 million a piece. And then he told me about this story where, where he, they had just built the Modern Art Museum in Dallas, Texas. It was a $180 million museum that they built. And he says they paid for it by selling three of their Clifford Stein paintings. And those paintings sold for $60 million a piece. He said, we have 53 Clifford Steins <laughs> in the vault below you. They're not even displayed. <clears throat> so this now, 
all of, I know you're, all your minds are reeling and you can have all kinds of moral judgments as to whether people should be spending money. Okay, you can do all that. The point of my telling you that and the point of him telling me that wasn't that he was boasting about how much money he had. You'd have to meet the man to know that I knew that. He was joking around with me because we were talking mostly about the economics and the reason people would want to invest money in art. But that's the level of the abundance, like to have a billion dollars in Clifford Stein art in the basement that nobody has probably seen in in a long period of time. So that's the level of abundance that he lives in. So he wakes up every single day knowing that he lives at that level of abundance. And so when he was discussing those things with me, I began to realize that there was a reality. Remember my statement last year that I'm learning that I, people don't think like I think? And so I'm very, very curious to listen to, the, to hear how people think and what's the difference in the way they think. And then realizing that it is through those ways of thinking when I recognize in myself that I think differently than the way abundant people think. As I get transformed in the way that I think, then I'm aligning myself to the similar ways of thinking towards the world that we live in. And then the same abundance, then that flow of abundance is then flowing at me. And we all know that. I mean, we don't have to be a victory very long before you hear that mantra. Most abundant ways of thinking are scriptural. This is where we've gone wrong. We've had these scriptures are not new scriptures to us. The fool with the barn is not a new scripture to us. Matthew 6.33 is not a new scripture to us. We just haven't understood it properly from a biblical business entrepreneurial perspective. When I was speaking to Seymour Knox, and I've said this to a number of people probably in the room, so I apologize if if you've heard this one. When I was sitting with Seymour Knox, he was, of everybody I have ever spoken to in my life, he is the most present person I have ever spoken to. He's the, the person who I would describe as the most in right now. He was, I mean, I am nobody to Seymour Knox. He did not know my name. He found out that I have a church in Fort Erie, wherever that is. And he was literally captivated by the discussion that we were having about the Lord and the things of God that we were having at that table with Bishop and myself, one other fella, and Seymour Knox. And through that conversation, those four hours or so, we had talked about some of the things that we're planning on doing as a ministry. And when we were leaving, and we were saying goodbye in the parking lot, he made a point of coming over to me and wishing us the best in this and this and this and this and this. Now, this is a multi-bazillionaire. But what I learned from that is that, in fact... Abundant people think differently than regular people do. As a person, if if you're buying into this to buy yourself a job somewhere, invest some money to buy a job, this is really not the environment. You're probably going to be offended like heck with me today. But if you are in this because you're sensing the Lord and his desire to create 
significantly abundant world-class businesses, then what we're going to talk about today is going to rock your socks. And that is how do abundant people think. And so I'm not, I probably have 200 of these that I'd like to go through with you. I will mercifully not go through them all today. But let me take a look at a, a number of them, and then I have, I'm going to finish off with something that I feel like you guys definitely need to learn about money and what is money. Okay, so middle class people, if you have your notebook, then let me take a look. We're going to go through them fairly quickly so that I don't bore you by the time I get to the stuff that I really want to talk to you about today. So there's going to be sort of, I don't know what's the right way to say it. Let's talk about it as lack people and abundance people. Are you going to be offended at me if I show you that most of you think in a lack-filled way? Okay, so let's say, I really don't think it's lack-minded, but how do you know when there's a lack issue that you need to be addressing? And then how do, what, is, what is the way that abundant people uh, think? So number one, lack people, they want to live comfortably. That's their objective. Abundant people embrace being uncomfortable. And can I say, if I asked you to write down on a piece of paper today, I, sh- I should do it every time we get together. Uh, if I ask you, in what way are you disciplining, your, are you buffeting your body today? You should all have an answer for me. There should be a way that you are requiring of yourself to be a more disciplined and focused and, shall I say, uncomfortable person. Come on. If you are not doing something intentionally to get used to feeling uncomfortable, I can promise you when uncomfortable comes, as it will, you're going to run from uncomfortable. I've learned that a couple of years ago. Now, this is a health issue, so you decide yourself. I'm not your health coach here. I noticed a few years ago that I pretty much live inside during the wintertime, except for this awesome time when I have to stand beside the rear end of my truck and put fuel in it. And I noticed that when I would do that, I would literally be so cold I was shivering. And I realized that the reason that I was so cold that I was shivering is because I live at 72 degrees. Everywhere I go is 72 degrees. So my body is not getting used to handling the cold. And so as I'm able to do it now, I mean, I'm not foolish about it, but if you see the way I'm dressed today, this is how I go outside. Unless it's cold, cold, I adjust myself on the way down. But if it gets under 72 degrees, I don't put a parka on. The reason I don't is not because I think I look cool in this shirt, which I think I do, by the way, but I do it because I'm trying to, I want my body, as the seasons change, I want my body to get used to the change in the seasons so that when I am in situations that I'm outside or I'm doing something like that, I'm not literally frozen to the bone when I get out there. Now, that might seem silly to you, but that is me being uncomfortable, pushing my body 
to, and accepting the okayness of being uncomfortable because uncomfortable is buffeting my body. It's making my body become more used to cold weather, which it's not normally used to. The problem with us, if you're an outside, an outside person, <clears throat> then you probably are outside all the time, but you don't get colds. It, the, where people get colds is where they're inside people, and then they go outside for 10 minutes, they freeze to the bone, and now their body is in shock mode, and they're susceptible to getting sick. It's a different way of thinking about things when it comes to our physical body. It's exactly the same scenario when it comes to our soul. We have to be getting ourselves used to, even embracing. Remember the book of James starts off this way? Glory in your tribulations. That through the power of endurance, we might be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. God is telling us to learn how to embrace uncomfortable situations so that we are not addicted to comfortable. We're not addicted to putting all of our excess harvest in the barn because then it's more comfortable and we can live safe and, oh, this is no problem at all. Now I get to relax. That's exactly the person that God referred to, and he doesn't do this very often, as a fool. Okay? So if you're addicted to that, I remember a fellow came up to me, we were talking about this one time about, you know, what would you do if you got a million dollars? And that person's response to me was, I would take it easy for the rest of my life. And then I was talking to that person, we were in a discussion about, because it kind of went the other way around, that he was talking to me about what would I do if I had a million dollars. And I had this and this and this and this and this, and we do this and we do this and we do this, and we build three of these and two of those, and we'd have this done and that done and this done and that done. I already have a list of things that we would do with that million dollars. None of it was stick it in the bank and, and sit on top of it. So you recognize then if you have an addiction to living comfortably, when you have the opportunity to live comfortably, you're going to take it. And that's going to sit you firmly into the middle of Luke chapter 12. So get used to then and start to change your mindset about things in your life that you consider to be uncomfortable. Buffet yourself. There should be something every month that you, are, you have a schedule. This is what I am buffeting in my life right now. I am going to learn how to do this. I've been on that with working out. Because I'm not a workout person. You wouldn't know that by this amazing physique. But there's, I'm trying to learn how to make this part of my life. I'm a three-month quest right now. I'm kinda, I've actually paid my tuition at the gym. I am now an actual member. I'm not sneaking in behind Alex when he opens the door anymore. And so, but it's not easy for me, and it's been difficult to make it work with my schedule. I got all the same excuses that we've all got. It's easier for me to lay in bed an extra half hour than it is to get up and go to the gym. Has, has anybody not recognized that? It's comfort. It's the, so be buffeting your body in some way or another every single month. That's your assignment. Number two, lack people live above their means. Oops, this is one here. Two, rich people live below their means. And so what you want to be looking at in your life 
is your ability to save money or your ability to have $100 in your pocket and not be driving illegally to the mall in order to spend it? Does money build a hole in your pocket? When you go to, the, to buy a car, do you start off by looking at the ones you can afford and then go to the ones you can't afford and then go to the one a little bit more expensive than that and buy that one? Do you do those things? Or are you a person who is very content? Remember, uh, Timothy says that cont- God, uh, great gain with uh, godliness with contentment creates great gain. This contentment is in this factor right here. Sure. That I'm, I am totally great the way I live now. Not that I'm not expecting to have more ability and more abundance, but I'm not dissatisfied with where I'm at now. It is the discontentment that makes us people who live above their means. We're so discontent with the way our lives are, as soon as we have the ability to change them, we run out to try and change them. And then I will be content, only find out that I'm still not content. Because contentment doesn't come from the outside. Contentment comes from the inside. Abundant people, remember now, this is people who, have, who think about money like you think about oxygen. Not one of you woke up this morning worried about whether you were going to run out of oxygen today. Unless, at some point in your life, you have run out of oxygen. But if you've never run out of oxygen, then you're not concerned about whether you ever will. But I can promise you, you need oxygen more than you need money. You're good for four minutes if you don't have oxygen. You're probably, each one of you, certainly some of you, are good for 90 days without any more food. And so there's a, there's a reality where we recognize that our opinion towards money has been built. It's not a logical opinion towards money. Because if I was afraid of, ev- of not having the things that I need, then being afraid of oxygen would be the most important thing that I would be afraid of. But I'm not afraid of that. Abundant people think about money the way you think about oxygen. When you go for a run in the morning, you're going to use three times your allotted oxygen requirement. Not one person who goes for a run this morning worried about whether they were not going to have that supply and they were going to drop dead of asphyxiation in the middle of their run. When I need more oxygen, where do I get it from? I just inhale twice as often as I would before. And there's not even a thought that crosses my mind. Can I tell you, that's how abundant people relate to their money, relate to money in general. You're going to find out before you go home today that that's exactly what money is. I'm going to show you mathematically that money has, there's no, there's, there's an infinite supply of money. Okay, number three. Lack people want to climb the ladder. Do you know what abundant people want to do? They want to own the ladder. What does that mean? That means that abundant lack people, they will looking, they're looking for a good job. 
they want to have promotion and opportunity and they want to trade their hours for money. Abundant people don't think about things like that. Abundant people think about owning the system, owning the process, owning the business, owning the environment, owning the patent, owning the copyright, owning the whatever, real estate. Because it's like, the, the, it's, it's, I see this over and over and over. The biggest mistake that businesses make, the biggest mistake businesses make is they don't buy the real estate on which they sit. They take their hard-earned money and they give it to the person who owns the apartment complex or the, or the, co the, the, the facility that they operate their business out of. I've told you my story about Ray Kroc. Did I tell you that story? Yeah. You all heard it? So Ray Kroc did the convocation speech at Harvard, I think in 1998 or something like that. Do you know where Ray Kroc is? Ray Kroc is the founder of McDonald's restaurants. Not the founder, but he's the guy that turned it into the franchise environment that it is today, powerhouse franchise environment. <coughs> and so Ray Kroc asked the students of Harvard what business they say he's in. And so the person puts his hand up, I think you're in fast food. Another person says, I think you're in the beef business. And people that said, I think you're in the kids' toy business. I think you're in, no, 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 no. And, they, and he said to them, he said, you know what business I'm in? He said, I'm in the real estate business. And I use my hamburgers to pay for my real estate. And he says, I own all of the prime real estate on this planet. And if you think about it, there's a McDonald's on Red Square, on Times Square, on every other square in the planet, and he owns all that real estate. And so the biggest thing is that people who, have, who get businesses and they're looking to be, I want to climb the ladder. I just want to keep having more and more business and more and more business. Instead of people who are trying to own the property, they're trying to own the equipment, they're trying to own the patents, they're trying to own the copyrights, they're trying to own all of those things because they recognize that ownership is the true wealth. Cash flow is not wealth. Cash flow is not wealth until you turn it into something that, that contains wealth. And so most people become middle class, normal people become addicted to the cash flow because of they, it, it provides them a lifestyle. I'll see all the way these things are all connected. Instead, as a business person, your number one priority is to own the real estate in and around your business. And you're building your cash flow and all of those things in order to be able to afford it, which we'll discuss again at the end. You'll see how you can do that, and it's the simplest thing in the whole wide world. Okay, number four, black people are friends with everyone. Abundant people are, let's say, selective about who their friends are. Now, the Lord challenged me with this, it probably was now 18 months ago. Somebody came up to me and they said, I'm sure you've heard the quote, that if show me who your friends are now and I'll show you who you'll be in five years. How many of you heard that quote? And so it kind of got and, you know, hit my spirit like 
there's something wrong with that quote, even though I agree with that quote. Um, and what was hitting my spirit was how that quote hits a selfish person. Because what a selfish person will do when they hear that will be, I need to change my friends and have p friends who are bigger and better and faster and stronger and smarter and richer than me so that as I trade away all the friends that I have right now and trade up to these awesome friends, then I'm going to be a more awesome person. You probably could feel that that was really nasty as I said that. Kingdom people, we don't do that. As kingdom people, we're the awesome people. And what we do is we open the door for people who aren't quite as awesome as us to become our friends so that they can become awesome. Does that make some sense? Yeah. And so we have to make sure then that when we are making friends with people, we're making friends with people on purpose because we want to allow the anointings that are on our lives because of the revelations that we have to affect people who want those revelations and to open the door for those people to have access to the revelation and the understanding and the anointing and the impartations that are upon our lives. And so even though this is true, rich people have friends above them. That's what they focus on. That's what all the networking, you know, why do they go to golf courses and have parties and all these things? Because they want to have friends who are above them. Kingdom people, this is still also very true, that we don't, we don't have friends Intimate relation, I'm not saying friends as in acquaintances. I'm talking about the people who are in your inner circle. The people who are in your inner circle need to be people who are willing to challenge you, who are, willing, who are walking the same way that you are walking, so that we can challenge each other in our kingdom responsibility yes, to do these business things and these environments and these dreams that are on the inside of you and do them in such a way that they open the door to people that are desiring or that they sense that this is also the call of God that is upon their lives. That is going to be a critical dynamic in the, the next hundred years of the kingdom. Literally, there need to be thousands and millions of people who begin to understand the kingdom as it applies to living a life of abundance. And the only way that that happens is through the, the, the discipleship efforts of the people who are already God is assigned to have those revelations. Do you understand how I'm saying there? So what we do is that we, number one, we make sure our inner circle is people who are going to provoke us who are going to be in our face with the way that we live and the way that we think and making sure that there's not negativity that rules the roost when I am around and get me to get my mind away from those types of thoughts into these type of thoughts. But then also we are opening the door, particularly if you have the same color hair as me, that you're opening the door to a whole generation of people below us who have no fathers who have nobody leading them into the wisdom that is required in order that the dream of God that is upon their heart can come out in manifestation. That's the job of a father, to identify and support the dream that is in the, the heart of the son. As we do that, as we open the door downwards to these people who recognize that call upon their life, we're going to set a blaze to the way the kingdom is going to operate. Number five, 
These people work to earn. These people work to learn. Probably no place have I discovered this in a more rich way than in the ministry. When we started the ministry, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. I didn't even think I was starting a ministry. When the Lord said it to me, he said, start a Bible study and get ordained. And so I was willing to do that much. But we didn't really have any idea, and I was completely unwilling to do what I do, to be a pastor or to have a church or these type of things, because I really didn't feel like those environments were life-giving. Now, it's just being me honest with you guys. Um, I felt like the typical church environment, the business model of a typical church environment is ridiculously flawed. And so because it's so flawed, it really doesn't work well. And so I wasn't really willing to do it. Why would you jump off a cliff if you know that you're going to crash at the bottom? Why would you do that? Nobody would do that. But what the Lord really empowered me to do by just kind of inching me forward and doing the things that we've done over the last 15 years of being in ministry, it's been, it's sort of been a, a constant learning environment for us. And so rather than this being a job or this being an environment where, you know, I'm looking to see if I can find a way to get a paycheck, the ministry to me is a place where we're, going, where we're empowered to learn the ways of the kingdom and learn how to empower and inspire people in those ways. Not just preach them, you should have all of this stuff in your life, but actually decipher how do you get them? How do those things become functional, operational in our lives? Your business, the idea that you have, it may be uh, an awesome business, but you are very specifically empowered to learn something super creative about the business that you have. God does not have you in the business so that you just keep doing business like you've been doing business. God has got you there because you can see creatively how to transform the business that you have with a new idea, with a new concept, with a new nuance, with a new marketing, with a new strategy, with a new format, a new structure, a new patent. Something is inside of your business and only you can see it. That's the key here. As like Paul was saying at the beginning, as we pray in tongues and as we commune with the Holy Spirit and we live for God and we are in constant communion with him, there's going to be ideas that come for you if you have a mindset that I'm working to learn something. You see, when I stood outside as a minister or as a business person or whatever the different environments that I've been in, as I stood outside looking at what that was, you really don't have the ability to really understand where the opportunity is in that environment. Going into the environment now, I can look around, I can experience it, I can flow with the Holy Spirit, and I can learn something that is going to put you in a place of supernaturally accelerating the course of your business. If, you don't have, if you're just there because I can't wait to get to Friday to see what my paycheck is, if it's all about the money, we're blinded by that, and we don't learn. We don't go into business every single day because I'm looking to learn so that I can be, at the end of the day, the excellent uh, uh, contributor in your industry. It is by doing those excellent things 
that empowers you to be the excellent rewarded person. That's where the excess comes from. That makes some sense? I mean, these, all of these, I could talk a day on each one of these, but... Okay, uh, lack people, they want to have things. Abundant people, they want to have wealth. Now, wealth doesn't mean you don't have things necessarily, but they're different kinds of things. And their objective is to have those things. Like where you're talking with Seymour Knox, their family determined that what they were going to do was that they were going to invest their money in artwork, which probably is silly to all of us until you understand how artwork works. And then it's like, oh, whoa, man, that's not silly anymore. Not, I'm not saying that I, I recommend it. It's not my, that would never be my way of doing it. But there is a real logic and a real investment, a real brilliance around how they do the things that they do. And it's quite remarkable. And so the key to it, though, is that they're looking to have wealth. They're looking, grandfather was looking to, for a way that they can take their cash and turn it into surviving value, lasting, almost eternal value. Like if you were to have a, you, you know, you trade your, your thousand dollars for an ounce of gold, then that gold, no matter what you, well, no matter what time we are in, that gold will always be worth a thousand dollars in whatever a thousand dollars is at that time. It could be 10,000, it could be 300, but it'll have the same relative value to the value of the world that you live in. What does that mean? That means that that money, because if you have $1,000 and all of a sudden the U.S. dollar is now worth 25 cents, now you only have $250. But if you have gold, gold will survive that, for yeah, example. Real estate will survive that. Even though your real estate, you might buy it for a million dollars and then it's now worth $50,000, it's still worth relative to, their, the, to the economic state it is still worth the same amount of money, even though the numerical value is significantly decreased. Does everybody understand that? So that's why people take their money and they turn it into wealth. Because when they turn it into wealth, it's now eternal in, a, in that sense. It's not eternal like it goes to heaven. It lasts forever, right? It just It's always here, right? I, I was done, when I teach my real estate course, uh, which you should listen to, by the way, Wealth 101 that's in the bookstore, I talk about turning that so that turning your money into real estate rather than spending your money. So take your money, buy the real estate, rent the real estate, take the money from the rent. Or if you take a look at those two scenarios, you have the person who just takes their $1,000 and lives on their $1,000 and now they have no $1,000. Or they take their $1,000 and buy real estate, rent the real estate out for $1,000. Now they have the $1,000 and they have the real estate. So they have the money twice. Three times, actually. We won't talk about that. You have to buy the tape. But what you're doing is you are multiplying your money and you're making your money eternal. And the real value of that is that you don't... What's the right way to say it? You don't have to keep making money to look after you. You very quickly get into the spot where now the money that's looking after you is the money that you made five years ago. Now that is turning in around, and that money is now making you money, so your life is done. You're taken care of. 
Now, all the work that you do is now 100% available to do something else with it. You don't have to eat it anymore. And that's where you come into a new place in an abundant mindset when you know and your mind is finally set free of all of the, what am I going to do about my, who's going to buy my raisin bran tomorrow morning that's preoccupying 85% of your mental space. Get beyond that so that you're now your mind is set free. That's where you can now become this learner because you can observe things that you were too busy worrying about your money to observe a minute ago because your mind has been set free and you can think creatively. Okay? So focus again there. That's just a different way that people de- deal with things. Don't buy things. Can I tell you? Try to use this as a rule. Don't buy things that the day after you buy them, they're not worth what you paid for them. Just make that a rule. And if you do have to do that, you do it minimally. When I bought these socks, they're $4 for the socks. Now they're worth a buck. I am loath <laughs> to do that. Go shopping with me. You know, It's like, man, getting me to part with a dollar if I don't, can't sell it tomorrow for $2, that's almost impossible. Because I just don't, I'm not that I'm a lack person. I just, it just has no, no value to me, has no meaning to me. And so because of that, I want to focus so that the resources can go towards gaining wealth. Wealth then that can mean that my children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren, now they can come into an environment where they don't even have to think about, like Seymour Knox does not have to think about how do I, you know, can I get Starbucks to hire me? Will they pay me 12 bucks an hour? They don't have to worry about that when they grow up. They can grow up thinking abundantly, and that way of thinking is very different. And that's what you want to be creating. You might not have the ability. You have hair color mine, the same as mine. You may only, we may only get so far in our journey, but can we make a way for the people who are coming into the kingdom who are in the pink room right now, who aren't even here yet, can we create an environment where the life that they live is radically different than the life that we lived? And can we accomplish that? That's the greater work, I think, of the apostolic movement is not about the people who are in the movement right now. The apostolic movement is all about the next generation or the one after that that is going to be coming into a lifestyle of abundance and they're thinking this way, knowing that there's a whole crowd of people who are waiting to see the dream inside of their life because I want to empower it any way that I can. And there's six. Imagine what that will do as the brain circuitry of that person is being molded. That's what this is all about. God wants to be able to mold brain circuitry to be thinking differently than a lack-minded person thinks. Each one of our journeys right now are taking bad circuitry and trying to mold it into good circuitry. Can we do all of these things? Can we have people who are, who are this type of a person as we go forward, but they're learning those things from when they're children? Because they're watching the other people who are living kingdom-style, abundant lifestyles, and those people are training or giving the examples to those younger ones. Now, when they come up through the journey, they're sitting in this class and going, looks like I got all six so far. We're thinking like, mm, I think I'm okay with number three. Because they've just, not, it's not your fault. 
right? My journey through this, imagine me, I'm raised by uh, wonderful people, devout Catholic people who believe that poverty is next to godliness. It's right there in the book of Hezekiah. And because they believed that, they put that on us. I can remember this like vividly, probably one of my most vivid teenage year memories is I was uh, going to be a lawyer. I can't imagine why anybody would think I would want to be that. And so I'm going to Toronto School of, uh, you had to do a a pre-law kind of program, and then you're going to go into law school. So it's August, and I'm going to Toronto next month in September and going to law school, what pre-law. And uh, I'm just conflicted as well as anything. I know that if I go become a lawyer, I am going to be a really good one, and I'm going to make a whole lot of money. And that's conflicting me as a good Catholic boy, thinking that's going to cost me my soul. The Bible says it's going to. And so I quit. Now, I wasn't wasn't super brilliant. I went and became a businessman and went to business school. That wasn't necessarily a step up. But the confliction that I had at that time was between living a godly life and living an abundant life. And how those seemed to me to be absolutely exclusive environments. They, they could not be mixed together at all. I had relatives, my, I mean, I, and I love them and deeply love them, but they took vows of poverty. Their objective was to fit everything that they owned into a little purse about the size of like that. My auntie sister, Jama, she came and visited us when we were children. She arrived with this little... I don't know what you'd call it. I think there's a name for it, a triangular-shaped purse that is literally that big and that long. And everything she owned in the world was in that bag. And she had gifts for four children in that bag. And they thought that was godly. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be free from the love of money and from lack and from all of this greed and avarice and envy. and We certainly should be free from that stuff. But the objective is not to be free from that stuff and be okay with living in poverty. We need to be free from that stuff and then begin to embrace the lifestyle of abundance that God intended for the people he intended to take over the world. Because if you want to take over the world, you better show up with your visa card. You better show up with your checkbook. Because changing the world costs a fortune. Just getting out of town nowadays costs a fortune. Okay? You all okay with this so far? Put your hand up if you're offended. Anybody in here offended? You're all Christians. You'll never say that. Okay. Seven. These people are focused on saving. What are these people focused on? Okay. Yep. They're focused on earning. And so when they have money, what they're focused with, what they're determined to do with that money isn't to stick it in a safe place. Rich people are not foolish with their money. They're calculated, they're studied, they're purposeful, they're planning-oriented, they're information-based. What, what a rich person does, what an abundant person does with their money seems foolish to a person who is looking in from the outside. They think it's risky. 
they think it's daring. They think it's foolish. What they don't realize is that rich person, that abundant person, has done their homework. They understand some things about what they are doing that mitigates the risk. It doesn't take it away. Life is risk. I hate to tell you. Getting out of bed this morning, that's a, that, was a, that was a biggie for you. You can't remove all the risk, but you can remove the foolish part of the risk. By doing things and learning things and understanding things, being mentored in things, apprenticing in things, all of those ways of doing things that abundant people do. They learn how to make their money earn money. Like I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> and by, by no means do I belong completely on the right-hand side of this list yet. But when we were deciding as a ministry to repair the roof, stop the rains from falling, we had a decision to make. We had, we had but I forget the exact amount, I think it was $82,000 or $87,000 that was given to the ministry, all of you generous people, given to us in order to repair this roof. And then we'd have two options, two main options. One was to put ash, redo the whole thing, take off all the existing asphalt. It was a flat roof, asphalt, pitch, kind of a stone, gravel kind of roof that was on there before. The problem is with asphalt is it expands and contracts with the weather and it begins to develop cracks. And then obviously cracks are bad when you have a roof. And so that, then the water would build up there and it would slowly make its way into the crack <coughs> over the winters. It would freeze, which would widen the crack, and then over the summer, the water that had seeped underneath the lining would boil and turn into steam, which would then further separate and expand and deteriorate the, the, the membrane. That was what was up there. That's how it works. And so we had an option. Either we take that off and spend $75,000 having somebody redo that roof, or we go ahead and we do what we did, and we put that, that picture of the truss roof on there. Now... The, the understanding of the difference between those two things. The first one, the asphalt roof, although it would have solved the problem, gave us no greater benefit as a ministry. It didn't improve the property value. It didn't improve the appearance. It didn't improve anything about it other than it improved the fact that there was water coming in the building. By, instead of that, by deciding that we can use that money and turn that Seventy or that eighty thousand dollars. How do we make the eighty thousand dollars worth more than eighty thousand dollars? You see, if we take the eighty thousand and we just redid the roof, the eighty thousand dollars would have been gone. There's no the the building is not worth more money. It's not in the bank. It's not even on the balance sheet because it's an expense. It's not a I don't know if you understand accounting, but it's a prof a P and L. It goes on the P and L as an expense. It doesn't go on the balance sheet as a building improvement. So literally, the money is vanished, other than we don't have rain coming in the building. If you put a pitched roof on, one, we increase the property value of the building. So this building is assessed, I think it was at $125 a square foot. Now it's assessed at $150 a square foot. Now that doesn't sound like much until it's a 18,000 square foot building. So that value increased this property value by $250,000. So if we were to sell the building today, we would sell it for $250,000 more than we could have sold it for this time last year. 
Not only that, but if you notice in the porch area there, we have increased the square footage of the building. So not only did we do that, we, we ha have an increased 1,000 square feet of the building. So our 17,000-square-foot building is now 18,000 square feet, which is another $250,000 in the value of the building. So by spending our $80,000, we now have a building that is worth $500,000 more than it was worth this time last year. And, no rain. and there's no rain in the building. And it looks nicer. And... Who loves the little crosses that are etched into that little star? <laughs> All of those things now, now realize that the difference is in this kind of area here. Can you take the money that you have and earn more money with the money that you have? Or do we just spend it? If you have a mindset that says, I'm going to earn more money with the money that I have, then... I move myself over to here. Every dollar that you have has the ability to earn another dollar. Every dollar. That, then, if I think that way, then what I'm trying to do is I'm trying not to continually increase my cost of living in or, because I've got more money to spend. Because I recognize not the value of a dollar. The value of something is determined by its rarity. These glasses are worth $14. If they were the only pair of glasses on the planet, they would be worth $14 million. The value of these glasses is simply their, the rarity of them. If I put a Gucci logo on the side, that would make them rarer because there's only so many Gucci, there's only so many Gucci glasses on the planet. Do you understand? And that's what that'll put, create the value of it. When we look at the value of a dollar, that concept is based on a shortage of dollars. There is no shortage of dollars, as you're going to learn in the last segment that we have today. Instead of that, we have to think about money as the power of money. Every dollar has the ability to earn many more dollars. And so when I recognize that, I'm careful with the dollars that I'm not, not, I'm not worried about the dollars that I have. I just consider it of the dollars that I have in their ability to make a whole bunch more money, a whole bunch more dollars. And like the, the decision with the roof, it was kind of complex for me because I don't ever, we don't have this, first of all, it's not my building, it's the ministry's building, but we don't have any intention of selling the building. Until we have the prophet come in, if you remember at the beginning of last year, where they said, you guys need to get prepared for a, for a bigger building. How many of you remember? Were you here for that when Mark Coffin was here? That was the decision. Because God says, we may have to sell this. And I still, I don't, I don't, doesn't necessarily mean, if, I, we, if we build another building, doesn't necessarily mean we have to sell this one. If there is a potential, now we have the ability to sell it for so much more because of the decision that we made. You see how all those things go in? A person who's over here isn't even thinking about that. You have to consider then what's the right decision to make your money, whatever you have been given. In our sense here in the ministry, it's not my money that we're dealing with. It's the ministry's money that we're dealing with. But it's the same way of thinking towards the reality of money and how money works and how abundance works. Can I tell you most... Normal people 
natural lack people think the only way to get abundant is to win the lottery. Abundant people, they don't think that. They don't even think the lottery. If they gamble, they gamble for sport. They don't gamble to make money. I'm not promoting gambling by any means, but what did I do with that marker? There it is. Uh, okay, number eight. These people are emotional about money. What are these people? Jacob about money. They don't respond emotionally. Money has almost no emotional value to an abundant person any more than oxygen has emotional value to you as a person. If you feel emotional towards money, like if you have $100, you feel awesome. If you have no money, you feel terrible. You're in the lack group. When you are abundant about money, you don't feel any different if you have a lot or a little. Life doesn't change. You don't feel emotional one way or another. You go to the mall and look at all the cool things at the mall and be okay with not owning any of them because it's just no emotional value to you. You're not, you're not emotionally inspired to do anything to do with your money. Everything to do with money as you learn, is mathematical. It's logical. I'm not saying that the dream inside of your heart does not have an emotional quality to it. It definitely does. You are passionate about the thing that you're passionate about. But when it comes to the way you relate to your money and its ability to fulfill your dream, your money has always got to be discussed and understood logically. And if you do the logical things that need to be done with money, you are going to be able to live an, an abundant life. That's not even, that's not a, that's not a, it's not a, uh, some people can and some people can't. That's not how this works. It's just doing things logically and just being, understanding your money as a logical thing. Remove the, the emotional factor to it. And get healed if there is an emotional. This is one of the places where you can identify. If my mood changes, this is how I used to be, right? If, you, if, you know, if, I, if I, ha I got a check in the mail and no bills in the mail, I have an awesome day. You are going to want to be my friend. If the opposite day comes, you need to be at least 100 yards away from me. Because my moods would swing like I was bipolar, because I was in my relationship with money, even though I am a very logical person by bent, my relationship with money was very emotional. And so if it has an emotional quality to it, you are still over here. That's okay to be over here. Please don't hear me saying you're bad to be over here. You just need to do some soul transformation in order to get yourself over to here. Two more to go and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on to my next point. Uh, lack people underestimate their potential. This is huge in the kingdom. Abundant people 
big. What I notice as probably the, because I recognize that it is the soul of a person that is the precursor to the natural experience of a person, when I listen to people talk about their dreams, most of the time their dreams are so small that I almost can't listen all the way to the end of their dream. It's like, oh my gosh. Because their dreams are so small. The one thing that this group needs to do in here is you need to stop thinking about your dream based on the limitations that you have personally imposed upon your dream. Mm -hmm. Unless you can do that, when I get to point number 11 today, you're, it's going to shock you what I'm going to tell you. But if you don't update and get rid of, I need to dream in a responsible way. I don't know who taught you that. But most people dream not even in a responsible way. They dream in a way that says, if I believe in my dream, there is absolutely zero possibility that I will ever get disappointed or discouraged. In order for your dream to have that component to it, your dream is pea-sized. It's microscopic compared to what it has the potential to be. You have to get rid of the limitations that are making your dream, like literally a dream that is this big. You know, I, what I'd really like to, I don't want to make fun of anybody here, but I, what I really want to do is I want to have, uh, you know, I want to clean windows in people's houses. That's a, great, that's a great dream, but that's not a dream. That's step one. Then there is the guy who runs Amway, who cleans the windows in a million houses. It's the same dream. It's just one person dreamed way out in the impossibles of impossible, and then other person dreamed, like, how much work can I get done in a day, and how much do I really, how much, how many hours do I want to spend cleaning windows anyways? all based on limitation after limitation, limitation after limitation after limitation. But the only way your dream is going to take this kind of brutal force behind it is if you first see your dream a hundred miles beyond your personal ability to accomplish it. Abundant people don't ever think how much work can I get done today? That thought has never gone through the mind of an abundant person, ever. And that's how most people think. Abundant people think about the bigness of their dream and what resources are necessary in order to accomplish it. The fellow, I had the chance to meet the fellow. I didn't actually meet him, but I had the opportunity. The Amway guy, as it turns out, shockers for all of you, is a good friend of Tommy Reed's. <laughs> the joke there is everybody is a good friend of Tommy Reed's. <laughs> and so the guy that developed the Amway system has the, had the dream of doing it, and then the system, the Amway network, was just the way that he found to fulfill the 
bigness of his dream. He had to start with the bigness of the dream. And then there was just how many options are there to get this job done? And he determined that it was going to be a multi-level system, as you may know about Amway. And so, but he would never have got the multi-level system if he didn't already have the big dream. Does that understand? You have to start with the big dream. You have to start by removing this, I'm sort of an unqualified person, and no matter what I try to do, I'm going to fail. Or I'm going to be disappointed, or I'm going to be a fool, or I'm going to be humiliated. Or I, these are just all real things, but they're not real in the sense that they, are, they belong to you. They were, they were gifts given to you that we foolishly, when we were young, accepted them. We should have sent return to sender, but we didn't. And so now what we have to do is we have to re-revolutionize the way we think so that the creativity and the resource and the understanding and all of these things that are necessary to fulfill the dream at this size are flowing towards us. If we dream this big, then these resources and abilities and understandings are coming at us, which nothing's coming at you because you already know how to do it at that big. Does that make sense? And we underestimate who we are. We all, and Christians by and large, I mean, I would say you just put them all in a room and they're all exactly the same in this area because they don't have a revelation. We all know this, a revelation of their sonship, of their place in the family of God. The richest guy ever lived is my dad. And he said to me, beloved, I am with you always and all that I have is yours. Just that one alone, if we get a revelation of what that means, Real life, not just churchy stuff, Sunday morning kind of stuff. Real life. What will happen, this dream gets bigger just by getting the revelation. Or let's put it the other way around. This dream is being kept small because of the bondage of bad thinking. It's like what you do when you have a child. If you, you know, hang out with the kid and then when you're going, you, you spend an hour with the kid the first half, you just hang out with them. The second half, you start the second half by giving them $100. What happens to that kid second after you give him $100? His dreams have gone bananas. Let's go to the movies. Let's go here. Let's go here. Let's go here. Let's do this. All because he had $100. He had the 100 You had intended to give him the $100 half hour ago. He didn't know that. But all of a sudden, getting the, the, the boundary removed from his mind, and all of a sudden he realizes in an eight-year-old's world, $100 is $100 million. The, the whole world of possibility has opened up. And now he can dream 100 times bigger than he could when he started. He didn't even bother to dream at the beginning. But now that a boundary has been removed... Our opportunity is to get the boundary removed at the beginning because we recognize no matter how big your dream is right now, it's small. Say that to yourself. I'm st still not big enough. You should be able to go to, to, imagine yourself going, like I did when I was with Seymour Knox. And I'm talking to him about the dream of what we're trying to do here at Victory Christian Center and the purpose and the global and the diggity 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 diggity. Now, I don't talk very much. 
you know, if you know me at all, when I get in those meetings, I'm the listener. I ask, I'm the ask, or the ask questioner, not the talker. And he was too. So I had to oblige him by answering a few of his questions. Would you be proud to go and stand before Seymour Knox and ex- explain your life dream to him? Would you be proud to tell it to Donald Trump? Would Donald Trump be impressed? If not, you shouldn't be satisfied with it. Wow. Very good. You need some more work. You need to start thinking, okay, wait a minute here. Like how many people on the planet do you think? You ever wonder that? I haven't met anybody who thinks like I think personally. I'm just saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying I've never met anybody like this. It's just kind of wacky for me to do, but you're probably the same way. Go talk to somebody, your compatriot, your age group, who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't know the things that you know, and ask them about the future. They're not going to talk like you talk. God has a great resource in you, every one of you. On in, realize this, you didn't, believe me, the cat did not drug you into this church. How you got here, that's not how you got here. You got here because God brought you here. You're hearing what you're hearing now and not liking it probably at all by God design. By God design. Until God gets these ways of thinking out of his children, he cannot do the job he's trying to do on the planet. Because he's not, well, he is coming back, but he ain't coming back to do what you're supposed to be doing. He's coming back to wrap this sucker up. But he wants the world to be transformed. He wants thy kingdom come. And until stop thinking like thy kingdom come can come on a hundred grand. Thy kingdom come cannot come on a hundred grand. We got to stop thinking like that. And I'm not apologizing anymore if I'm offending you by talking money in church. Those days are long gone. Because if I do, I'm my time. As we have, the, we have literally, we have the goose that lays a golden egg. We know how to see transformation happen in people's lives, and we can't get out of town. We can't. I mean that in the, we will, believe me. We just, we've just been busy writing the book, and now it's time to go get the job done. But it needs people, business people, strong, powerful, excess harvest people in order to take this to the, to the very farthest corners of the earth. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness unto every people group. And then the end will come. This is going to happen. The only question is, are we going to get to do it? Or are we going to write the book and let somebody else do it? That's all. Simple. Uh, Number 10. This is going to probably shock you. These people believe in hard These people, oops, how did I do that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. These people believe in leverage. <laughs> leverage is probably a term that most people don't understand. Leverage is the ability to take what you have right now and multiply its power. So, for example, if I leverage money, I may have $10 right now. 
take my $10 and I ask you to put in your $90 because I have a great idea and I only have $10, but I have a great idea and you like my great idea and you give me $90 in order to do my great $100 idea, I have leveraged my $10. I've multiplied the power of it because I engaged a relationship, I engaged debt, I engaged a partner, I engaged something else that multiplied through a synergistic effort, multiplied the power of what I have. You may have an idea, and that idea is a great idea, but you don't have any money. So you can take that idea and you can leverage the idea by partnering with somebody who has money. And then you can get the idea accomplished. You may have a patent, but you don't have the tools in order to build the patent. And so you have to leverage that idea by finding a way to lease the tools that you need in order to build the patent and thereby multiplying the power of the patent. Because in itself, it's not powerful enough. Does that make some sense? So your friendships, your relationships, your ideas, your connections, your understandings, your people, your equipment, your floor space, Everything can be leveraged. It can be increased in power. Just look at everything that you do and find out what are the things that have the ability to be leveraged. If you don't have enough money to do something, you very rarely can work harder to do it. That's very rare that you can do that. The most powerful way to do it is to leverage the money that you have. Leverage the idea that you have. Rich people, this is 11A. Uh, let me read it to you right. Rich people believe, no. Uh, let me just, I'll tell you the quote. Smaller part Rich people believe a smaller part of a bigger thing is better than a larger part of a smaller thing. And so partnering to create a bigger thing is more valuable than going it alone on a smaller thing. Because they believe in leverage. They believe in you bring another person into the mix and you get their whole leveraging ability in the mix. As you do that with your business... Because most people's businesses are small like this because they need to own the whole thing. And if you get away from that, people, if you look at the large corporations that are in the world today, the powerful things that are going on, the owner of the corporation probably owns less than 5% of the company. Always, but that's pretty much always. 5% ownership of Apple and you, you are, you Okay. Okay, let's take a break. I'm going to show you how something works that, as I said in the text, if you got my text yesterday, I have never talked to a single person ever on the planet that is, has explained to me what I am about to explain to you. I'm going to tell you about how something works 
that is probably going to shock you. Because what we're going to talk about for this last part, let me give you the number 11 on your, on your list. Black people think that money is finite, that there is a limited amount of money. Abundant people think that money is infinite. And because they feel as though money is finite, normal people believe that money is finite, there is a limited amount of it, they always feel as though they are competing for the limited amount that is there. So what I'm going to explain to you this morning, evening, afternoon, is what money actually is. I'm going to explain to you how it works, and I'm going to explain to you then, because it works the way that it works, how to absolutely, in the simplest, simplest way, how to cause abundance to move towards you rather than away from you. There is a very specific mechanism, very specific. You could all engage that mechanism before you go to bed tonight. It's that simple. But if you don't understand the way money works, the way, what actually money is, then you're just going to, I could tell you what the key mechanism is. I have told you what the key mechanism is many times. But I'll tell you right now, if I went through the room, and I asked you, how many of you have done this little thing that I told you to do? Chances are, out of the 50 people in here, two of you will have done it. The reason that you haven't done it is because you don't understand what it does in the mechanism of money. So I want you to think to yourself for a moment. What do, I, let me, what do I have any money with me? I do. Here's a $20 bill. It's US. It's a $30 bill. I want you to think to yourself, where did this come from? Okay, so it's, well, not really, it's cotton. So <laughs> it's, okay, so let's say the plant material is, the, the, how did it, how, how did it get to be from the fabric that it's printed on to be a $20 bill? How did it do that? Think, no, 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 think about it. Who did it? Who did it, specifically? <laughs> So I'll tell, you what, I'll tell you what the normal answer is and tell me if you believe this. You believe that the government printed the money. They decided one day that they were going to increase the money supply, and so they printed a whole bunch of money. And now, because they've got an amount of money, they're, we're all competing for the amount of money that the government has printed. How many of you think that's where this came from? Probably all think that. You just don't want to admit it. <laughs> that's not at all where this comes from. That is where... 100% of the people I've ever spoken to think this came from. But that's not where it came from. That's not even how this works. That's how it used to work, like, 300 years ago. But it doesn't work like that anymore. But nobody bothered to tell the masses that's how it works. And because nobody bothered to tell the masses, we don't have the ability to attract it towards us because we don't even know what it is. We're still the animals scratching and scraping in the dirt looking to see how we can compete with the next person to get more of the money. So what do we do? We get education, and I'm not against any of these things. 
You need education. You need hard work. You need perseverance. You need ingenuity. You need perseverance. You need discipline. You need to hone your skills. You need to identify what's great about you and learn to how to serve other people with the greatness that is in you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all true. But you use all of those things to compete. Abundant people use all of those things to attract to them the money that they need in order that the money takes their dream and manifests it. As I said to you a couple weeks ago, I think in the offering time or whatever, money is simply the lives of other people encapsulated in pill form that you can then take that life and exchange it to give life to something else. That's all money is. Money isn't anything. It's just a container into which life is stored. When you are looking to fulfill the dream of God for your life, you can either try to use your life to do it, which is then competitive. It's like, I need to hone me. Or I learn how to attract money to me so that the money can be used in order to empower other people to take hold of my dream and the purposes and advance them forward. I am certainly one of those people that are being the contributors because it's my dream. It's my desire. I want to be involved. Most people live their business career as a little business with a pickup truck and a shovel. The reason that they do that isn't because they don't have a desire to be bigger than a pickup truck and a shovel. The reason that they stay at that level is because they do not understand how to attract the lives of other people containerized in money, take that life, get it inside the business, then turn that life and release it into the lives of other people and attract their life. And this life process continues over and over and over again in your business. Empowering your business with life, which then causes it to thrive and causes it to grow. When all your business has is your life, it doesn't have enough to thrive. It just sort of like stumbles forward, inches along, and then you die and the business is gone. The business doesn't have anything other than your life to give to it. Am Am I speaking too philosophically here? So the key to world-class businesses, to summarize here, the key to world-class businesses is that you learn how to attract the money that you need in order to fulfill it at the world-class level. In order to do that, you have to understand what money is. So... Where does money come from? Does anybody know where money comes from? Let me tell you the, let me tell you the process. It's going to be shocking to you. It's going to make you laugh. Not in a, probably in a good way. Laugh and cry all at the same time. 
What happens when we are building money? Most people think that money comes from our government, and that's not true. Um, we have a different system now than we used to in the past. When you talk about the history of money, I don't know if you know the history of money. Uh, it, it was created by the gold uh, industry, the people who were goldsmiths and gold keepers and gold. They were the, 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 the merchants of gold. And what you used to do at that time was you used to take your gold into the vault, the only guy that had the security system in place. <clears throat> they had the vault and they had all of these type of things which would keep your gold safe because you didn't want to have the gold in your house or in your pocket or in your boot because then somebody could steal it from you or you could lose it or something, you know, whatever. All of these things could happen in a world where there wasn't security like we have today. So what you used to do was you would take your gold and you would give it to the gold keeper and the gold keeper would give you a receipt. And so you gave me uh, $10 worth of gold and I gave you a receipt that says you can come back and get your $10 anytime you want because you have a receipt that says you gave me $10. So then Garth would have the receipt and I would have the gold. And then uh, Garth wanted to go and buy a pair of shoes from John, and he said, oh, this is such a bother. I got to go in. I got to talk to Ian. I got to get my gold back, and then I got to take the gold. I got to, you know, wander through the streets at night and take that gold piece over to John's business where he's going to sell me his $10 shoes. Then John's, you're going to give you the shoes, and John's going to take the gold and give the gold back to me because he doesn't want to keep it either. So in their lightning fast minds, they said, why don't we just take the receipt that Garth has. Garth gives the receipt to John, and John now has the receipt. I still have the gold. I've had the gold all the time. They now, and then it just continues and continues and continues and continues and continues. The gold never leaves my vault. All that circulated around was this little piece of paper that said, this is my claim to $10 worth of gold that is in the vault. Those pieces of paper then became, they are the ancient form of what we now know as money, cash. And that's how most people think that money works. Like when you go to the bank and you borrow money to buy a house, you're so thankful for Ernie because he's taken all of his money and put it into the bank because then that gives them the ability when you go there to lend you the money that Ernie has put in the bank. That's what everybody thinks happens. That's not what happens. That's not how money works. That's how everybody thinks money works. But that's not where it comes from. And so, about 100 years ago, the money system changed. We no longer have a gold, what was referred to as a gold standard dollar. That meant for every dollar in the bank, there is, or every dollar in your pocket, there is a matching dollar's worth of gold sitting somewhere in a vault, which is Fort Knox thing, which most people still think today, that somehow my money is worth something. But your money isn't worth anything. It isn't even anything. That's the problem. Everybody thinks it's still something. It isn't. But 100 years ago, they changed our money system from a reserve system to what's referred to as a fiat system. 
A fiat system means that your money is not what it used to be. It, there isn't anything backing your money. It's just your money. Your money is already a commodity in itself. They changed to a different style of system, a system that's referred to as a central banking system. Now, a central banking system means that the government no longer controls the money. They don't, government doesn't print money anymore. They do the physical printing of it only because of its security issues. But they only do that in the response to a very specific thing. And it isn't because they're creating the money. They're not doing that. In a central banking system, the banks print the money. So what happens is this. The government sells bonds. Bonds are promises to pay from a government. They're basically an investment that you make in your government. The government gets approval to sell bonds to people. Then when they take that money, they give that money to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is the bank that banks use. The Federal Reserve gives that money to a bank. And then, what most people think, again, is that the bank takes that money and lends it to people. Then that's not what happens. If we take a look at this process, let's say that the government got sold $1,000 worth of bonds, and that $1,000 went to the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve gave that $1,000 to the bank. What the bank does with that money is they put it in their vault. They don't give it to you. What they do is based on a system called a fractional reserve currency. What a fractional reserve currency is, <clears throat> is that the bank has the license... This is the important part. The bank has the license to lend out, uh, I don't remember what it is in Canada anymore. I think it's 32 times. The bank has the ability to lend up to 32 times as much money as they have in their bank. That means that this bank that got $1,000 given to them by the Federal Reserve, which is a sort of a private, not private, it's, this is very weird. Anyways, doesn't, this doesn't really matter. Everybody, all the conspiracy people think that this matters. This does not matter, okay? It actually is better for us, way better than all the conspiracy people, okay? So don't get wrapped up in all that stuff with Jekyll Island and all that. If you've been involved in that, get the heck out. It's, this is not a problem. This is better. What the bank is able to do then is they take their $1,000 that they have in reserve and they can lend out $32,000 worth of money. People are going, I need to go buy a bank. <laughs> That's true, by the way. But this, this is the key. 
What this means is that that bank printed, in a sense, $31,000. The government only did 1000 How many of you are wondering how to get some of that? Then, by the way, because you get some of this, you can go buy a government bond, which gives another $1,000 to the government. So every time you have $1,000 that you buy a government bond with, you're actually producing a $31,000 worth of money. Do you see that there's, and let me tell you something, you think this is a joke, I can tell. <laughs> this is how your money system works. It's not sad, believe me. That's lack thinking if you think it's sad. It's lack thinking if you don't know how to get your hands on this $31,000. If you, have a, if you understand how to get the $31,000, you think this is the best system in the whole wide world. The problem is nobody knows how to do it. That's the problem. So you're going to leave today knowing how to get it. How many of you would like to know how to get it? How many of you are looking to get on the other side of this equation so that you realize money is actually infinite? This process literally, could you imagine what's going on right now? Just, just note to self with all the money that the US government has been printing, $85 billion a month for how long was it? Four and a half years? $84 billion going in here. <laughs> What's 84 billion times 32? I can tell you something right now this is why people freak out. When the government gives the banks money, they go, oh, the rich people get all the money, the rich people get all the money. That's not true. They do, but that's not the point. The point is, is that when this system goes through, what he's actually doing by printing $84 billion a month, he's actually producing trillions of dollars out this side, but he's not. Do you know why? Because the gateway outside this thing is so small, they can't pump the money out fast enough. Because people don't understand how to get it out. There's all this wrapped up potential. I can't, I, the, the number is staggering. I can't even, like, no, a, a month. $2,688,000,000,000 a month. Multiplied every month for four and a half years. So you could take that $84 trillion, wrap it around the beginning again, multiply it again by 32, and come out the next month. That's just one month and the second month. This is four and a half years worth of money going into the system that just, it, there's not enough getting out. And if you, can, you can literally, with this system, this fractional reserve system, you can take as much money out of that system as you like. There's just absolutely no limits to it. It's, but it's like the, the, the water fountain faucet out there. People like it when it trickles out a little bit, 
if it came out like a fire hose, that would be a problem for us, right? Every time you went for a drink, you'd get soaked. And so they make sure that the only way money comes out of here is that it comes out in a very specific way. And that way, most people don't understand. And so, instead of accessing the, the overwhelming abundance of our business system, which is the way the system was designed, when the heroes of Jekyll Island went and started the U.S. central banking system, this is what they explained. It looks like it's a money boon to the rich guys. Believe me, the rich guys didn't need a money boon. They already had one. What this system does is it empowers something very specific. If you have one of these things, the money will flow towards you like a fire hose. If you don't have one, it will not. And the brilliance of the central banking system is that it empowers this one thing very specifically. The downside of a central banking system is that it continually creates a divide between the people who have one and people who don't. The great economic divide that is being created in our culture right now is being created because our business system, our money system, which is actually accessible to everybody, is only accessible to them if they understand the system. If they don't understand the system, it is not accessible to them. You can't get it. And you'll see why in a minute. By empowering you with what I'm about to tell you, how to be the guy standing right here <laughs> by the spout where the money comes out, in hand with what you need in order to get it given to you, literally given to you without limits. All you need is a little piece of paper in your hand with something written on it. How would you like to know what you need written on it? You need a business plan. If you don't have one, they're not going to give you a single penny of that money. I don't care how much your potential. I don't care how cool your idea is. I don't care how tough you are. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good looking you are. You ain't getting a dime unless you come with a business plan that is viable. On the flip side, you can be as ugly as the day is long. <laughs> Come on, you could smell like a horse at the end of a day. 
And if you have a business plan, they'll give you whatever you want. Selah. It's got to take a moment here. All you need to do is get that idea on a piece of paper, viable, it's got to make sense, it's got to be smart, it's got to be thorough, it's got to work. If you do that, our system, now remember, this is by design. Our system is designed to give money to people who are going to use that money to build economy. That's how this, th this whole system destroys the world. If you give money to people who don't know what to do with it, the whole system falls apart in a month. The only way this system has had the power to build an economic environment like the one we live in is that the banks refuse to lend money to people who don't have a viable business plan. Now, you know that. If you've ever gone to the bank without a viable business plan, then they just go, very nice to meet you, sir, but no. They refuse to do it. They are, the banks are the gatekeepers. If you have the ability to convince a bank that your idea is a good idea, you can leverage your $1,000, which they do require. There are some things you have to learn about working with a bank. But you can leverage the little bit of money that you have and get a whole bunch of money that other people have. Do you know how much I paid for this building? We paid for this building? We paid $100 for this building. That was our personal contribution. The rest of the money came from somebody else. How many of you would like to buy a $2.5 million building for 100 bucks? You can all do it. You can all do it. What you need to realize is that a business plan, an idea, a viable idea in the hands of a credible person. Now, that's complex. There's a lot in that. But a viable business plan in a credible person has the power to get almost anything. When we bought this building, I don't know if you've all heard the story, but have you all heard the story about buying this building? When we bought this building, we had $100 in our building account. A whole $100. Crisp and smiling $100 bill. And when we approached these guys, we bought this building with zero money down. We didn't pay anything on the mortgage for four months until we moved in here in November. And we didn't pay interest on the money that we borrowed from the lender for five years, which turned out to be seven years. Do you know how much seven years on a million and a half mortgage is worth? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of interest. A hundred grand a year, a hundred or so thousand dollars a year for seven years is $700,000 that we saved by not paying interest on the mortgage that we got for this building. That means we paid a million and a half for the building, but we actually only paid 800,000 for it. You see that? Because we saved the interest. 
Plus, we didn't pay for the first four months, which was another 50 grand, which was 750,000. We paid less than half price for the building, which we only paid $100 for <laughs> in the first place. Do you see what we did? All that was, was an idea. And the person who lent us the money, which was the guy that owned the building, he believed in our idea or in us or whatever. I don't know what it was that he believed in. But I certainly didn't go to him and say, I I'd like your building. I want to just own it, uh, sit on it, and kind of tell everybody and my friends that I have a cool building. He'd have gone, see you later. The only reason he bought into us was because he believed in what we were doing. And he called us goody-goodies. He doesn't even believe really in what we're doing. He just believed that we had a viable idea, that he was willing to lend us one and a half million dollars in order to get into this building. We've been in here since. This building is now worth two and a half million dollars. So for a hundred dollars, think about it, a hundred dollars in 2007, this ministry now has a million dollars worth of asset equity. Did you all hear what I just said there? How did we do that? We did that by understanding the value of an idea that is properly formatted and communicated and the, the credential of the person with the idea is bankable. So there's a big problem that we have as Christians. Does anybody know what that problem is so far in our discussion this afternoon? We don't believe in borrowing money. Because we don't believe in borrowing money, we stay small and powerless and insignificant in the global landscape of businesses. In the olden days, and this is why if you look in your Bible, and the Bible says to owe no man anything, doesn't say to owe no bank anything, by the way. It says to owe no man anything. So one, you should not owe a man money. Because when I owe Garth $10, every time he meets me, particularly when I have a quad shot triple latte, all he thinks about is the fact that I still owe him the $10. <laughs> and he gets madder and madder and madder at me, and I've made an enemy by drinking my quad shot latte. That's what happens. Yeah. Can I tell you your bank don't care whether you have a quad shot latte or not? They care about one thing, payment on time, simple. They're not mad at you. They just want you to do what you promised to do, which I think as Christians, we ought to be able to do that. And if we're not able to do that, we ought to figure out a way to do it differently. But we shouldn't, you know, whatever. Let's not go down that road. The system that operates in the world today is very different than the system that operated in the times when Jesus said, to owe no man anything but to love him. And that was that the system in that time to fail on a mortgage or fail on a debt in those days was life-threatening. Not only to you, but it was life-threatening to your family. So it was normal, if you see the stories in the Bible oftentimes, that a, a person now, their husband died. Remember the widow of uh, Elisha's day, the widow that had nothing, and the, the, you know, the oil and all that? And so she said to them, they're coming to get my sons. Because my husband died and he left debt. And now they're coming to get my sons and taking, him, taking them away into slavery. She goes to Elijah and petitions him to help her. 
That's how it used to work in the olden days. And so debt was not just a problem for you. It was a problem for your children, a problem for your family. It was a problem for all kinds of reasons that were really dastardly. Nowadays, it's different. Because our system of economy is a debt-based system. What that means is for you to be competitive in today's marketplace, you cannot attain to the level of competitive advantage and strength against somebody who is willing to use debt. And I, I, I know this is, I'm definitely going to be messing with your mojo here. Let me give you an example. Jason and I decide that we're going to compete together in HVAC companies. I am going to buy my real estate. He is going to rent because he doesn't have the money to buy real estate. He doesn't want to buy real estate until he can pay cash for it 37 and a half years from now. I decide to go and buy the real estate that I live, that I operate in. And I'm going to use mortgage money in order to buy that real estate. What's going to happen? One, I am going to build up appreciation equity, which means as I own the building and I am on title, if I bought a million-dollar building, I am increasing in the wealth of that, business, that building between forty dollars and $150,000 a year. That equity is being accredited to me, so to my company. So next year, when a new product comes out and I need some new $50,000 testing machine in order to compete in the HVAC business, which will make me three times more efficient than Jason's company, I have the ability to do that, and he doesn't. Because I can go to my equipment manufacturer and say, lease me that product, and he'll go, who are you? And I'll say, well, I'm the guy that owns the really cool building over there. And he'll go, here you go. Jason walks in the door and says, I'd like to lease that property. And he goes, well, who the heck are you? And he, and he goes, I don't know. I got 50 bucks in my pocket. And he goes, move along, Sonny. Then 20 years from now, Jason is still paying rent for the facility that he's in which is costing him $100,000 a year. My building is paid off. I don't have a rent number anymore. Jason's days are numbered. I am going to decrease the price of my service until I put him out of business. I'm going to do it intentionally. Because he's cuter than me, and I have a real problem with that. Simple. You can't compete against somebody who intentionally accesses the ability to operate at maximum efficiency through the use of OPM. You know what OPM is? Other people's money. Other people's money. <laughs> what you're doing when you are trying to live life without using debt in a debt-driven economy. Now, I'm not saying if the economy worked differently than this, then I would say, let's not use debt. For business people, if you try to do your business this way, you are going to be competed out of business. 
at least if you're competing against me. Instead of that, particularly in a world that is our present world, where you can borrow money at 4 or 5% mortgage money. Now, I, let me tell you, let's, let's make a difference here. Credit card money to afford to take your wife out to a $600 steak dinner, that's stupid debt. Let me be clear. Putting your underwear on a credit card is stupid. I, I'm sorry that I need to say this. If you borrow money for something that doesn't automatically double or triple or quadruple the amount of money you have because of that debt, the debt is stupid. Selah. That's the living above your means thing that lack people do. What you borrow money for is the empowerment of the dream. The facility, the equipment, the networks, the marketing, the production, the things. your time with us today and I trust that Mark will give you the rest of the CD. My heart goes with you. God bless you. See you in a week or so. I, I, I get the fact that this is, we're, 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 we're going to be big people in here, okay? We're going to really learn how to do this. I'm not looking to build little businesses. We're all wasting our time trying to build a kingdom that changes the world if we're thinking we're going to do it on $10 an hour. The only way we're going to get this done is if we start in this ministry raising up multi-millionaires. And that's not even, that's just a start. Amen. All of you are being given the privilege of understanding how to do this. The way you leverage what you are doing right now is by securing the OPM, the other people's money, not necessarily debt, there's lots of ways to do this, securing other people's money that are invested. They don't, they don't know what to do with their money. They don't want to put their money to work. They want to put it in a safe place. What you're going to do is you're going to be the open door to say, put it here. However, that would happen. Now, there's personal investment where there's an idea. But I'll tell you something. If you come to me and say, invest $10,000 in my cool idea, forgive me if I, don't, if I can't stop laughing. You don't know what you're doing until you have a business plan. I can promise you that if you don't think it's different, you've never done one. You have to think through a lot of stuff to build a business plan, and you haven't got a clue what you're doing until you've done it. But when you've got a business plan, and you can carefully explain all the ideas and all the pieces of that business plan so you know it like the back of your hand, I can almost promise you that maybe not you by yourself, but a consortium of people coming together around that idea, and you can be literally 50 times the size that you are right now, whatever you do. And you're not nothing until you've got 100 employees, can I tell you? It's not a real business yet. In business, business with three employees, you ain't a business.
you a job. Get out of thinking because of who you are and what God has shown you. I'm sorry for being blunt. Because of who you are and what you know, it's time. It's time. You, can, you have all got the ability to do this. Just like this ministry. Do you, know, do you know what the hardest institution, the hardest corporation, it's almost impossible for one particular kind of corporation to borrow money? Almost impossible. Do you know which kind of corporation that is? A church. Because nobody owns a church. Church is a, it's, it's like it's, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> There's nobody on the bottom line. There's no person. There's no shareholder. There's nothing. Victory is just victory standing over there by itself. So the banks don't like that because there's nobody. There's no person. So they don't want to lend any money to somebody who's not a person. Like a corporation, like a regular profit corporation is a person. I don't know if you understand that about our legal system. It's, a, it's, a, it's an entity. It's a person. Not-for-profit charitable organizations aren't even people. They're just sort of something else. I don't even know what they are. But that doesn't limit us. We can still do it. You just stop thinking you can't do it. We can do it. Your business, I don't care who you are. I don't care you've been bankrupt 72 times. It's still not over for you. You just have to change the way you think. Get the stinking business plan written down on a piece of paper, open your spreadsheet program, do the pro forma balance sheets and income statements of every year, figure out what you need, how many people, what equipment, what facility, how many cars, how many pencils, how many pieces of paper, how many photocopiers, write it down on a piece of paper until it makes sense to you. Now, you're going to be the most optimistic about your idea. But let me tell you something. Just doing what I just said, you are now in the elite 5% of North American human beings. 5% would be generous. 2% of people who have an idea that they have taken the time to put it down on a business plan. Figure it all out until it's organized. Let me just finish off with these couple things. Okay. One of the big problems that people have with debt, what's the biggest problem with debt? Interest. Too much interest. How many of you would agree? You ought to all agree, because that is the problem. <laughs> So the big, actually, it's not the problem is not interest. The problem is the uncertainty of interest. Because most people can borrow money today, borrow a million dollars today, it's at 5%. And so you know that I can, if it's 5% that I got to pay, it's a million dollars, I got $50,000 that I have to pay every year. Can I afford the 50,000? I can't afford the 50,000. If I can afford it, I'll take it. If I can't afford it, I won't take it, right? Simple. The problem is the 5% part. You don't know if next year it's not going to be 17%. When I was a young person, as most of the people that said interest rate was the problem, they only say that. Young people don't think it's a problem because you've never experienced 
what it means to go from 4.5% to 17% or 21% or 22% in a... See all the, see all the gray hairs nodding right now, folks? Because we've been through this. We know that debt is a beast. If the interest rates are not understood. Actually, it's not, in, not even the interest rate that's not understood. So I'm going to talk to you about the whole reason why I think you should consider what I'm saying to you. In the specific time that we are at now, let me, let me preface this on tape. I am not a financial advisor. I'm not giving you advice on what you should or shouldn't do with your money. I have no credentials whatsoever to tell you the things I'm about to tell you. Should you take this advice and use it in any way at all, it is absolutely zero responsibility to me. You are here for free. You're not paying me at all. I'm serious about this. I am not paying you. What you paid for when you came here was for breakfast. And you ate the $10 that you gave to this thing. What you're getting from me is absolutely free. Which means I have no responsibility whatsoever to know anything about what I'm about to tell you. If you use this information, you are doing so at your own peril. Am I, have I been clear? Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not being very careful. I know the millstone thing. I'm not trying to cause anybody to stumble. I'm going to tell you what I think. But now you go and make your decisions for yourself based on the logic that I am about to share with you. Very good. <coughs> like a thinking human being coming into the place where we're trying to understand how our economy works so that we know. Let me start by saying this. You know that I believe that the next four years is, in, is the year of extraordinary harvests. We're going into a cycle right now where we have the ability to make harvests like you have never seen before, that you couldn't even dream. Even if you wrote down a number today, you would not have a big enough number for what the potential is for harvesting in an extraordinary way. In order for you to harvest in an extraordinary way, you don't get that simply because you are a good sower, because you are a generous person, which I hope you all are. You better be, or you don't belong in this room. But your ability to create harvest is based on your ability to, to create the mechanism through which the harvest will come. Do not... Be childish about your understanding of God's desire to build economy. When God wants a world filled with abundance, he means he wants a world filled with economy. He doesn't mean I'm going to sit at home and someone's going to write me a check and put it in my mailbox. There is no economy to that. That is somebody investing in somebody who is very unlikely to do anything of value with it. Please don't imagine that God has got that as the perfect plan. We're just going to all write checks to each other. Okay? Yeah. You okay? That means the mechanism to create super abundance in your life is the ability to leverage or multiply the idea, the $10 that you have, the patent, the copyright, whatever it would be, to multiply those things to make them produce. Look at, the, look at the bank. This is why I want to own a bank. They took, they borrowed $1,000 from the Federal Reserve. 
they borrowed it at, well, now, zero. But let's say they borrowed it at 3%. That means they owe the Federal Reserve $30 at the end of that month. They took that $1,000 and lent out, if they could, they can't. There's not enough people with good ideas. They took that $32, lent it out at 5%, which you think, oh my gosh, they're only making $2? No. 32000 dollars times 5% is $1,500. Minus the $30, they made $1,470 a month. Does anybody want to buy a bank now? This is exactly what I'm telling you to do. Take your money, your idea, your business plan, and leverage it up to the place where, by using imaginary money and other people's money, and create the environment where the process can be exponentialized. Now you go to work because you've got to manage the 300 people that work for you. You still got to go to work, I hate to tell you. And you work harder, I hate to tell you. But what you're doing is your business now is competitive, efficient, up at a whole new level so that you have the ability to compete in the marketplace that you're trying to compete in. Can I tell you? The people in China, now you probably hear China people work for a dollar a day. No, they don't. In the fields, they work for a dollar a day. Well, they work for a dollar a day here in the fields, too, I hate to tell you. People who work in factories in China, they make $20 an hour. Did you know that people in Fort Erie would be happy to come to work for $20 an hour in your factory? You can compete head-to-head with China, who, by the way, needs to put their product from the other side of the world onto a container ship and sail it from China to Toronto. I think that's a bit expensive for every one of those little widgets that they make. There's no reason why you can't make those widgets and drive them yourself up to Toronto for nothing. The problem is nobody's thinking like this anymore. There's all these ideas that are going on the people think, oh, I can't compete with China. Yes, you can. You can't compete with China 50 years ago when people were building cars for $75 an hour. $600 an hour, if you consider how many hours they actually worked out of the eight hours they went to work. Thanks, <laughs> Ernie. It's all automated. And the price of cars still went up. You know, can I tell you, how much debt does General Motors of Canada have? $300 million in debt. Do you know what they did with that money? All the rich guys took it and bought islands in the South Pacific. No. They bought machines. You just hear them say that's what they did. It's all automated now. Now they have machines to do that work. So now instead of having 1,000 people who are a million dollars a year in revenue, now they have 500 people, which is $400,000 in understand? They, uh, uh, they became efficient. Now, if you want to go build cars for a living, you can't. Do you know why? Because you can't compete against General Motors, who has all these cool machines, which they got debt in order to get. 
you are permanently excluded from the automaker industry because you don't have enough debt. Simple. You can't compete. That's the problem. If the world was not a debt-driven world, then you could not, then you, I would not recommend you do this because this is a high-strung way to live. But because you do live in a world that is a debt-driven world, if you're going to be competitive, you cannot be competitive against somebody who has an unlimited amount of life being right. poured into their business. True. You're kidding yourself. And you're going to stay small, which is fine. If you want to stay small, that's fine with me too. But you have to understand this. Where was I talking about? Inflation. Interest is not really the problem. What we do in our world is we use interest rates to do two things. If we want the economy to grow, what do we do? We lower interest rates. If you look at the 2008 big crisis, we needed to get the economy going. We took the interest rate from six and a quarter, six and three quarters, whatever it was at that time, and we lowered it literally to zero, less than zero. If we want the economy to slow down, we increase interest rates. Then you say to yourself, why would I want the economy to slow down? Why is that? Why would any government want to slow down the economy? When the inflation rate goes up, like over, let's say over, let's do it on a yearly piece, let's say over 4% a year. What's, what is inflation? Inflation is an increase in the money supply without a corresponding increase in gross national product. So... Mike and I, Mike makes $10 an hour, I make $10 an hour, and John produces a dozen eggs a year. Mike goes up to $20 an hour. What's going to happen? We're going to compete and compete and compete and compete and compete, and the price of eggs is going to increase. Same number of eggs. Because the cost of those eggs went up, that's called inflation. There's been... But let's say Garth comes in and he starts making a dozen eggs too. Now, Mike makes $20, I make $20. There's two dozen eggs available. Does the price of eggs go up? No. That's the key. If what we were doing back in the day when inflation became a problem is we were spending money on things that don't make things or don't provide an increased efficiency for other people to make things. So we would build a bridge to nowhere. Just because the government, this is where the government gets involved in all these things they shouldn't get involved in, and they start spending money on things that don't need to be done. How many of you would like to come in on Sunday and we're going to take up an offering to change the carpet in this room? Half of you would say, Hello. what's wrong with the carpeting we have now? 
Because all I did was I took your $20,000 and I took good carpeting out of here and put other good carpeting in here. Nothing happened. How many of you say that's not a great idea? That's why I didn't put asphalt on the roof. Why, was, why would we take the asphalt off? I mean, it was leaking and all that. That's a good thing. But let's do something even better. What the governments have been doing that created the inflation problem was they're, spend, they're making money, they're taking the money that's being created, and they are spending that money in a way that it doesn't create a corresponding increase in the supply of goods and services. As long as we have, you know how the curve goes, supply and demand, right? And you have this sweet spot right here. If supply goes down, excuse me, if supply, dear Lord Jesus. Anyways, that's a long time ago since economics class. Uh, you, can, you know that as the supply of something goes down, the, the price of it goes up, right? If the demand goes down, then the price goes down, right? And so as long as we are, are focusing our economic energy on building businesses, does this sound familiar to anybody who watches TV? As long as we are focusing our political governmental focus on building businesses rather than building government projects, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be increasing both the supply and the demand. Uh, it, it, I forget, this is the way that chart works. That if I do an increase in supply and an increase in demand, the price doesn't change. Think about that for a moment, please. You have to think about this. If the price of goods and services don't change because we are building an economy around our money, not just money. Then we can look forward to a season when there isn't going to be any inflation. As long as the cycle's working. That's what you, this is why I'm telling you. This is my opinion. You decide for yourself. You're going to, every business is about predicting you're going, to you're going to govern yourself right now in your business based on what you predict is about to happen. I'm coming here as a prophetic person in your life telling you the next four years are going to be banner years. But they're only going to be banner years for people who embrace the fact that they're going to be banner years. And we tool ourselves up to be in the place where this increase in economy that is about to happen we're not going to increase the economy by government spending, a.k.a. Canada style. We're going to increase economy by the U.S. style, which is build businesses, build small, under 500 employees' businesses. And you'll see now, those of you who are Americans, this is what Trump is going to do now. He's going to make, it, make room for all these businesses between 100 and 500 employees to have literally whatever they need to build themselves 50 times over. When they do that, even though the economy, the gross national product of the country is going to go through the roof, 
it's not going to create an inflation problem. The fuel, I don't know, are you all, are you all understanding me, I hope? Yeah. If not, you just need to get the tape. Understanding that the fuel of an economy like ours is access to, to money. That's how businesses grow. Apple did not become Apple. General Motors didn't become General Motors because they're smart. They became who they are because they figured out how to borrow a, a pile of money and put that money to work in a super efficient way yeah. so that they could pay the note on their bill every month. Because if you don't pay the note on your bill, this whole system comes crashing down around your ankles. Yeah. Not only will you not keep the money you have, you ain't ever going to get any more again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Garth, real quick. No. No. It becomes a world of multinational corporations. Oh, yeah, that's what we are now. Because we don't have dreams in the middle class anymore. The middle class, the only reason the middle class is separating, that line from the wealthy to the have to the have-nots, the only reason that line is separating is because there's the dreams in the, in the have-nots are not being... Uh, they're not... The resource isn't coming to them to grow. It's, I know, you guys, you're all seeing it from the perspective of the have-nots. I get it. No, 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 I'm not. I'm, I'm seeing it from another perspective, really. Seeing if, if small business guys, 500 plus employees, are doing their thing, then that whole system can work. Yeah, but it's go it, wor it is the system. So the multinational corporations who own, you ever, 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 ever drive by a oh, downtown area and you see all of these buildings that are made of glass and go up into the heavens? Uh -huh. Do you ever wonder who owns those? These are billion dollar buildings. So that system works. Because the multinationals understand the system and they've just got the people that are accessing all of this money. People make, oh, the rich people, the rich people, they get all the money, the government, the rich people. It's not. It's that they just don't understand. The rich people know how to get the, the door open towards them. So they just want money, they get it. Okay. What has to happen is we have to accept the fact that the reason that we don't qualify for the money is because we're not doing what just a simple thing that needs to be done in order to qualify for the money. You have to convince. You know that, that guy that sits on the other side of the desk at your bank? Probably 24 years old with a suit. Sharp suit, too, by the way. You have to convince him, him or her that your idea is a good idea. Right. How hard is that, actually? No, you've gonna, no he's going to plug all... He don't make no decisions anyway. He's going to plug all of your numbers into a machine, and he's going to say, I'll get back to you tomorrow when the real people make the decision. So don't mistake the fact that you need to make sure you know how to make those numbers work. And you sometimes take time to qualify in your credibility, in yourself. Okay, that's real, right? But when you have the business plan and the credibility, you can have anything you want.
literally. It's just, it's, it's, it'll make you laugh. And unfortunately, there's going to be a number of you that are going to do it and a number of you that probably aren't going to do it. I'm not prophesying that. But then you'll say, all those rich people, those crazy rich people, they're just greedy. They're not greedy. They just have a dream. And they understand how to get their dream to bless a million people rather than bless four people. That's all it is. That's the difference. How much of a blessing do you actually want to be? Let's put it like that. Do you know how many people Apple blesses? A lot. I mean, sure, there's eight people somewhere that go, this is a piece of junk. But that ain't no junk. This, this, their thing blesses a lot of people. Like they have transformed the world with their technology. And people in Africa who would be excluded from world economy forever till kingdom come because of what Apple did and these guys who developed this technology. You go to Africa, they don't have a car or a house or shoes, but they got a cell phone. <laughs> Which is awesome. They don't know what to do with it yet. But if we go there and show them how to engage in a global economy because of that cell phone they have on their hip, excuse me, say that again. But if you don't understand this, yeah. what is it? It's just like the dream in your heart. It's not going to do anything. When we go there, no, forget it. How do you do that? How did I do it? Oh, as opposed to yours, I suppose. No, you see, what happens is you, just, you may not be able to go to an A-list bank and get qualified in an A-list bank. I didn't. I knew the church would not qualify in an A-list bank. I didn't even bother with A-list banks because I already know churches, they, they can't do it. I didn't try B-level banks either. I didn't even buy C-level banks. When we bought Derby Road, I got a VTB from the owner the owner, a VTB, a mortgage take back from the guy trying to sell the property. Oh yeah, that's how we did this one too. Because I wasn't trying to convince somebody who was trying to make me work on a whole bunch of boxes on a screen. I was talking to a person and I convinced the person that they could trust me. And they did. So, yes, as Richard says, not every door is gonna magically open for you yet. But I can promise you, if you do whatever it is, like us as a ministry, now, we, we're, I defy a regular corporation to compare balance sheet and financial statements with this church. And so now, if I, we, well, whatever, it's not the church, so it's different, right? But... Making sure you understand how to build a financial statement that beats the band and kicks butt and all the girls at the prom want to come and kiss you. <laughs> that's, that's, that doesn't, that isn't, that's not, it's not beyond understanding. That's, I'm not saying do nefarious things. You don't need to do nefarious things. You don't need to do stuff that's wrong. You just have to understand. Asphalt roof goes on to the expense report, which becomes a loss. 
new roof goes on the balance sheet, which becomes equity. What would you rather have, equity or a loss? Okay, was this that hard? But ask, think about it even in yourself. How many people thought I should just put an asphalt roof on there? Richard thought we should put an asphalt roof on there. Correct. Sure. But. I still would do it. Not a crap load. No, because. No. Okay. Okay. But think it through step by step. I spent 30% on the steel roof. I didn't need to do that. I could have put an asphalt roof, which would have saved us $20,000, except it's only a 25-year roof, not a 100-year roof. I didn't have to put the plywood. I didn't have to put the membrane. I could have done things a lot cheaper than the way we did do them, but because this is our place, we do them a lot nicer. So I could have competed much better against the value of asphalt. Maybe I couldn't have done it quite so good, but it still wouldn't have changed. Yeah, but... No, 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 but you, but you, when, you're, when you have a mindset like this, you will do the same thing, right? You could pay somebody $6,000 to rebuild the engine on your truck. You don't. You do it yourself because that's a way to create the efficiency of that process and have a better output. All business decisions are all like that. Everything is a, is a, is a thing. Mike has a new pedal up there. That new pedal that's in the box up there is a $400 pedal. We only paid $220 for it. Do you know why we did that? Because there's an open box on eBay that somebody tried it and took it back, and now I can buy it at 50% of its cost, which, by the way, I could go back to eBay and sell it back to them for that amount of money two years from now. Right. Those are the decisions that we make around here all the time, not because there's anything wrong with buying a $500 pedal. Does that make some sense? It's the way you think about these questions that empowers you when I'm doing the roof. If we didn't have the man, then that's a different decision. If I didn't have all of these construction guys that are in the room, it would have been a different. If we'd have had the meeting that we had before we started the project, we were just trying to decide if we were going to do the asphalt or not. Part of that decision was who's in. Because if I don't have the manpower, I, then I have to look at something else. These are qualitative decisions as we are moving forward. But the key to it is always from a mindset of how can we do it in such a way that it becomes the most advantage to the future of the ministry. And if it means that we have to go tomorrow, there's 900 people show up for church tomorrow, then we have to consider building another $10 million, square, $10 million building. Well, how will we do that? We can take up an offering and maybe see if we can get our $10 million for an offering, which I hope we can do at the time, if you guys can wake up and see this is how you do it. <laughs> or we go get debt like we did this. It still wasn't a bad idea that we did this. Now, it's been 2008, 9, and 10 when we couldn't pay the mortgage. You guys didn't know that. But those were lean years for the ministry because of the financial collapse. So you got to work like a dog to keep this place together. So 
It'll work like a dog anyways. And you make it work, and you do deals, and you figure stuff out, and you, yeah, go with God, and believe God, and all this, I'm not taking God out of the equation here. Believe me, as Richard said, this is a divine act of God that is going on here. But I can promise you God's interested in doing acts of God in your life too. He's very interested in making this work for you when you may not deserve to get a loan, you'll get one. You may not deserve. Your business plan is the dumbest thing since sliced bread, and you'll get a you'll get a loan anyways, and you'll by faith make it work. Now, don't think that you're going to do this by just pretending. Pastor Ian said they're going to give me money, so they'll give me money. And don't worry, God will pay the bill. No, you better wake the heck up and go pay the bills. I'm not saying, let's not take this like children, Christian children, business people that don't get the idea of how this process works. We're going to use, if, you're, if you want to build a real world-class business, you're going to learn how to use money in such a way that you make money with money. If I got to pay right now 4%, like if you, if you borrowed a million dollars to have a building, that means that building is going to cost you $40,000 this year. If you can't make than $40,000 with your million-dollar building, then you ought not buy it. If you can't make half a million dollars with your million-dollar building every year, you ought not buy it. But... Why can't you build a plan to make half a million dollars with your million-dollar building? You can. Oh, like life? Like 2008, 9, and 10 around here? You make it work. And sometimes that happens. And then you wake up the next day, take your business plan, and go start again. If your business plan, if your business plan is like finely shaved so that you make eight cents at the end of the year, you don't have a business plan yet. So in that situation, you've got, you know, a million dollars worth of iron underneath your butt, then the business plan has got to be able to make all of that work. And you need to know that the way your business plans work is that you know long before the tow truck is coming that you need to make some changes. And so when we did things around here, I had to go, this is, I'm on tape. Crap. We, there, was a, there was two tough years. Well, let me say that much. But we had to, work, we had to make it work. Otherwise, I had to tell you all to go somewhere else to church. And we had spent half a million dollars renovating the building, so he was happy to take it back. But he believed in us. And so we renegotiated. Started off getting five years interest-free, and then we got seven years interest-free. Oh, yeah, eight, nine, there's, there's, you understand? You make it work. And sometimes, as Richard is saying, it doesn't work. But that doesn't mean you quit. Sure, it means you get back on the horse and you put spurs on and you give that horse another good kick in the shins and you get going again. Because this works. And we might not be good enough and there are unforeseen things. There were, remember when we were kids, Ernie, we go, we go from 4% interest to 17% interest. That hurts. 
Yeah. Well, or what? Or what? Hey, let me let me tell you something. You know, how many of you watch Suits? You can't watch Suits. It's got terrible language in it. The one line on Suits. The one line on Suits. Sorry, I just gave myself away there. You know, it's Mike. It's this influence that he has on my life right now. I just, you know, what can I say? I'm just trying to minister to him as he's uh, watching Suits. Yeah. The one line in there that Harvey says to Mike, I hate to be spoiler alert for you guys here, but he says to him, when somebody's got a gun to your head, there isn't only two options, <laughs> right? It's not just quit or fight. Right. There's a thousand options. There's a thousand things you can do in that specific situation. You just have to know what those are, or you have to have access to somebody who knows what those are. Or you have to be a way, figure out a way to circle the wagons and figure this stuff out. And you've got to, and it, and it doesn't work all the time. And sometimes you're literally on your knees begging God to forgive you for being so dumb. I'm, I've been there. I, you told, I told you my story. In, 19, in 1994, they were going to take my house away from me. I was completely unprepared emotionally for what it meant to go through hard times. I did, never had hard times in my life. And so I was so out, out of my mind trying to get this, this vacuum cleaner to stop spinning that I didn't know what to do. And so it was literally at the very end of the day, it was God, this is like, what do you want me to do? You want me to go or stay? I don't know with you. And sometimes it would, it, you know, Richard's story is different than mine. Some of your stories are different than mine. But we can learn how to walk by faith. We can learn how to pull a rabbit out of a hat. As I'm not saying, believe me, I would not be telling a bunch of people who didn't have a clue what I'm talking about right now how to do this if I didn't believe you guys knew how to walk with God. That's a given here. I would not be teaching you this. I'm, I'm putting fire in the hands of a kid. And you can get burned really badly with this if you're not really ready to work. You're not really ready to, to do the do's and build a business and go to work like you have never worked before in your life. But it's not going to be, it's not going to be uh, toil anymore. Now you go to work and build your dream. And you have the money and the resources and the ability and the people and the networks and the know-how because you eventually you get to the place where you can hire in all of these things. It's like they said to Trump, how do you know how to be a president? He said, I don't know how to be a president, but I know people who do. But he, why does he think like that? You think that's, that's just a cool quote? That's how he does everything. He doesn't know how to do anything. Seriously. Yeah, he knows, how to, he, knows how to, he knows how to get people together into a room and get them to work on one project. That's what he knows how to do. And, and compromise. And he knows that being a smaller part of a bigger picture is better than being a bigger part of a smaller picture. So he'll, car he'll carve it up a thousand different ways as long as he gets it done. And that's then produced the ability for him to build a brand, for him to be a, a world-recognized personality, for him to literally, he decides to sell red hats for a living, man, the guy's going to make a million dollars selling red hats. He's just a machine going somewhere to happen now. Because he's like, this is how our world works, like it or not. This is how it works around here. And so if you're in Rome, you've got to play like the Romans. 
I'm not, saying become, I'm not saying becoming a worldly person. Remember the Bible says, you know, the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. Because we're still trying to figure out how to make money in Abraham's time. We're going to buy some sheep. It doesn't work like that anymore. I mean, buy sheep if you think buying sheep is a good business idea, but make sure you have a barn to put your sheep in. Are they going to die over the winter? Need money to build that barn. Am I making my point? Inflation. This is my prognostication for the next four years. I don't think interest rates are going to go anywhere. The reason I don't think they're going to go anywhere is because the United States of America is the fountainhead of interest rates. And if the United States of America puts their interest rates up, that's going to be counterproductive to the thing that Trump is trying to do. Trump is trying to open the gates any way he possibly can to middle class, what he calls middle class. Middle class is anywhere between 100 and 500 employees in your business. He's trying to open the doors for all of those things. He's going to deregulate. He's going to open the banking regulations for them. He's going to primarily keep the interest rate low. The only reason that he will have to put interest rates up is if the business economics of all of those businesses doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So what you're deciding is, over the last 50 years, the government's involvement in trying to spur on the economy has been in government spending, which creates inflation, ridiculously. Trump's and hopefully whoever takes over for, um, sorry, I don't know if I can say the word. The, whoever takes over will take on a similar plan. You'll have to. Canada is going to be one of the surviving first world nations when everything turns the other way around, by the way, because we have a great banking system. This system that I told you about here in Canada, it works the best that it works anywhere in the world. Even the U.S. system is not as good. The U.S. system is like on thin ice. It can fall apart any time because they have a proliferation of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of banks. Canada, we have five, and they are highly regulated, but in order to get money from them is also very difficult, if anybody who's tried. But that doesn't mean that's the only place to go get it. There's all kinds of tiers of money. Oh, dear Jesus, I feel like I've given fire to children. <laughs> Please temper everything I have just told you with everything I've already told you over the last 15 years. For business people who understand how to use vision, that's what this is about. Right? Luke chapter, Romans chapter 15, uh, 15, May the God of hope, sorry, may the, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing and that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's Romans 15, 13. What God is saying is that when you build a hope on the inside of your mind, 
hope is the mechanism by which our economy works. Mm. Let's be very clear here. What I just showed you is that somebody who has an expectation of the future to build a really nice, solid, profitable business, who's responsible with their money and willing to share their profits with other people who would partner with them through debt or equity, that hope is what drives our economy. You cannot get money out of that system if you don't have a business plan. That business plan is a quantified version of your hope. You understand? So our economy is built, our, the way our economy works is it only funds hope. Hope that is quantified and a business, this is business wording. If you don't know what a form of balance sheet is, then you need to find out. But that's business. Business people talk that language. Bankers talk that language. You need to understand a banker's language. And so when you learn the language, now you just communicate in that language. You don't talk emotionally. Oh, I'm so excited about this business. We're going to make a million dollars. It's going to be so great. Business people going, I'm sorry, what language are you talking? I don't understand a single word you're saying. You want to talk to a banker? You got to talk banker language. Anyways, what was I saying? The money out of here requires hope. If you don't have hope, if you don't have a vision and plan for the future, you can't get money out of that system. And so most of the time, can I tell you, the problem with your vision is it's too small. It's very hard to make a business plan like Richard was sharing with us earlier. It's very hard to make a business plan with one truck. I mean, it works generally, but it's just not a really good business plan. If your business plan is making a brass-colored keychain with a picture of a 1967 Mustang convertible on it, that's awesome. The banker's going to think, what happens if nobody likes 67 Mustangs anymore? So you need a business plan that makes keychains and toenail clippers and uh, whatever, the wrench that takes the, the tire off of Richard's truck. Now I've got a diversified business plan. That's better because now I'm not at risk. He has one truck and one market and one route. What if that truck rock, route and market dry up? If I have 75 trucks and they go with 72 different businesses and they go to different places and in different industries in different times, I like the business plan better. This is just logical. <laughs> so you need to build a business plan that has got these factors in it. This is all stuff. People go to school to learn this stuff. And you can learn too. If you don't ask questions, if I don't know the answer to it, I believe me, there's lots of people to go to and ask these questions. How do I solve the tax problem? I haven't got a clue, but I got some people you need to talk to. It's all information that's available. Don't be afraid of it. You just have to realize that there are mechanisms. People are doing this every single day, but they're all secular people who don't believe in God and they believe in making money and they believe in using OPM to make money. And so all they're looking to do is figure out how to get more OPM. 
I don't know if you know this language or not, but when I was in business school, this is all they talked about. All us guys sit around and figure out how do you get OPM. Especially coming right out of business school, you want to go make it and make it fast. And you're coming out of there with nothing but the jeans on your back and a bag of barbecue potato chips. You need other people's money. So they, that's how they think about everything. So we have to, as critical thinking, apostolic, business-minded entrepreneurs going into the next hundred years, we got to start becoming wiser about the way businesses work and stop being so intimidated by money because all your life, money has been telling you it's not going to come to you. Instead, you have to learn how money works and work it that way. They may not give you money for a Ferrari and a vacation, but they'll, right now, the next four years, and I think the next 12, by the way, at least, by the are going to be where businesses are going to find it easier than ever before to access economy. And there's going to be so much economy because of all the other businesses that are also coming up. B2B businesses, uh, economics, uh, you know, uh, uh, consulting type of businesses and all of these type of things. It's just going to be, please, it's Disneyland for Ian. And hopefully you guys. But you got to go home and you got to write that business plan down and you got to keep pumping that business plan until it works, until it impresses you first. And then see if it'll impress somebody else. Try impressing me first. Save yourself a little bit of blood, sweat, and tears. Okay? Does that make sense? Let me make sure I got everything. Did I offend you all today? No. All right. Come back next time. I'll try again. Uh, sure. Uh, okay, so seed time. Remember we talked about seed time? This is a season of seed time. Oh, I thought you said it was harvest time, Ian. Yes, that's where seeds come from. I didn't know if you knew that. This is the season over the next four years where you invest in infrastructure and foundation. Do you know the difference between momentum and inertia? How many physics students are there in the room? Momentum is just the forward motion. Inertia is forward motion with mass. You can have a motorcycle going down the road at 40 miles an hour, and you can have a train going down the track at 40 miles an hour. How many of you know that's different? The motorcycle hits a brick wall, right? The motorcycle. The train hits the brick wall. The brick wall dies. Isn't that true? What's the difference? Inertia. What's the difference? Mass. What you're doing in your businesses now is you're building mass. What does that mean? That means competitive strength so that if after the four years we go into another slump, the guys that die in the slump are not you because you have the people you have the tools, you have the, the, the networks, you have the real estate, you have the patents, you have the copyrights, you have the whatever it's that give you strength. Somebody comes into Fort Erie right now and decides they're going to build a contemporary greatest church in the galaxy. Guess what? They got me to contend with and I got some inertia. How many of you know that? You know the leadership team I got around here? 
every pastor in the world would like to have my leadership team. Don't you all know that? How many of you say, yeah, this place runs like a pastor Ian? Man, he is the greatest worker in the whole (laughs) wide world. No, he ain't. He's got the best leadership team the world has ever seen. You you think you get that in a minute? Right? You don't get that in a minute. Took it a while, right? You know how this works. Building a team doesn't happen overnight. Building a group of people happen overnight, but building a team doesn't happen overnight. So that's what you do. You need your people, your team, your network, your system, your structure, your equipment, your computers, your website, your mortar and steel and buildings and vehicles and all of those things right now is what you invest. That's this, Remember that I told you the seed to sow? And bread for food. Seed to sow doesn't just talk about your offerings, which, by the way, should be freakishly awesome. Make no mistake about that. If you, you know, can I tell you something about a gambler? How many of you ever watched a gambler? When they win, what do they do with their winnings? Play more. They play more. Why do they play more? Because they can win more. Because they're going to win more. They believe in the system that got them the jackpot in the first place. That's why they all leave pretty by the end of the night is because they made a lot of money and then they lost it all because their system is bad, right? Christians make a little bit of money and run. What does that tell you? That tells you the gambler believes in his system more than the Christian believes in his. Does you understand that? Am I clear? So as Christians, we don't forget 30, 60 old means that I can get to the 60 and the 100 by reinvesting in the 30 time. And rolling it, rolling it, rolling it, rolling it, rolling it, rolling it, and I'm just planting more fields, and so I go from 30 to 60 to 100. Not hard math here. In what way? Oh my gosh, that's another whole morning. But what, specifically, what do you feel is mis- missing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the, can I tell you something? I don't know how the founders of our countries, your country, really, the America, set the, set the, literally changed the world. I don't know how they figured that out. These guys came out of a monarchy. So they should have come to the United States and set up a monarchy. That's what everybody does, right? The revolutionary comes and, you know, death to the king, and then they, because they weren't kings. This is not rocket science. They came... I had to be inspired by God because what they did in developing the free market economy that we think is just normal. The world has never had a free market economy. What they did was is they said they're going to give the power of economy back to the people and the dreams in the hearts of the people. The reason that they did the central banking system was because in the early years of the United States of America, they could, the government was too slow in responding to the financial money needs of all these businesses that were flourishing beyond flourishing. And because the government was too slow, they would have a certain amount of money and they would take a year before they'd even look at what their money supply was. Meanwhile, all the businesses are being choked in their ability to have commerce with one another because there wasn't enough money for them to use as an exchange. So these guys came in, the, the Jekyll Island folk, they came in and they said, you gotta, we got to fix this problem because we can do a billion times better than this. Guess when they did Jekyll Island? Right before the 1920s. 
Does anybody remember the 1920s, the one they called the Roaring Twenties? Yeah. I got, yeah, it didn't end well. I understand. But the system that they built was a really, really good system. And it literally electrified the business ideas that were in the populace of people in the United States of America, like has never been seen before. And then they started screwing around with a couple of things not have screwed around with, and then they created the Great Depression, which sent us into a tailspin. But they know now how to fix it, because we should have gone into a Great Depression in 2008. Anybody know the situation? You don't need to. But they fixed it the right way. Instead of pulling money from it, they poured money into it, which is what they needed to do. Our economy is like a guy running down. That's what the Lord showed me. Remember before the tent meeting when that first happened, when it blew up and that tent meeting was the next day? And I said, Lord, what do we do? And he said, your economy is like a man running downhill. The only hope for that man to not tumble and fall is that he keeps getting faster and faster and faster as he goes down the hill. And that's true. Uh, the way we fix our economy is not by pumping more money into it, although you need to do that. It is by encouraging and empowering the ideas inside of the individual person who understands how to access the ability to turn their dream, which is an invisible thing in their heart, into a manifested business that is blessing millions of people. That is the free market economy that we live in right now. The problem with it is most of you young people have never even heard of this stuff before. You've been through, you're probably graduates of high school, college, and maybe post-secondary, and you still haven't heard any of this. This is, the, this is what the kingdom has to do right now. It has to create selfless people who are willing to engage in the system without the need to pour their money greedily upon themselves. And literally, over the next 12 years, take over the economic status in the North Americas. And you think it's not possible. I disagree. It's not possible if you don't learn what I've taught you today. So what you're going to go home to do now is you're going to go and get a business plan written on a piece of paper and text me when you got it. And I'll be waiting for it, believe me. Money owns the future. Make no mistake about it. Money owns the future. I have spent too many years in the kingdom where we're saying, you know, God's going to take care of the future. God's going to take care of the future. God's going to take care of the future. He did take care of the future. He put a dream in your heart. And he built an economic system that allowed you, born a pauper, to become a king. That's never happened before in the history of mankind. And most people, born paupers, stay paupers because they will not change the way they think about money and about the dream that God has put in their heart. God's going to meet you at of heaven and says and say to you what did you do with what I gave you did anybody miss Matthew 25 did yeah. you miss that one going through the Bible tower that one out God is going to ask us what did you do with what I gave you what God gave you is the dream what he gave you is the passion of your heart to do something that's never been done before and change the world and take control of the money so that we don't have to bless the, the boys with strip clubs. We can bless them with lots of other cool things. Because we control the money. We control the money. We control the, the town. We control the town. We control the city. We control the city. We control the country. I get it. You think I'm trying to take over the world? <laughs> I am trying to take over the world. 
Make no mistake about that. I could care less about it. I believe the kingdom needs to take over the world. Because I've told you before, I am tired of seeing people suffer. Not a single human being ever born needed to suffer. They needed to persevere. They needed to discipline. They needed to accomplish. They needed to work. They needed to grow. But they never needed to suffer. Poverty never should have been on this planet. Not a single child should experience poverty ever. And if you got your head in the sand, all right, you're going to tear out half your Bible because this is the big boy club in here. I told Mike, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to create a secret society. I'm not going to keep it very secret, but I'm going to create a secret society. We're going to work like a secret society. We even have a logo. Secret. It's a secret. I'll, t- I'll talk to you about it next time we're back together because I don't have time today. I'm already over time. But I'm seriously, we need, to, we need to, you know, can I tell you secret societies? They operate awesomely because they are tight-knit groups and they really believe in each other. They really believe in the, 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 the group. And so I feel like we need to create a, a secret society. We need, a, we need a handshake. We need kind of like a little wink and a nod. and a I know that I, my, I know they all think I'm kidding, but Mike, Mike here knows I'm not kidding. I'm not going to keep it secret. I'm not going to keep it secret. I think the kingdom is the, is the best thing that's ever happened. The revelation is about to transform the world. It doesn't work sloppy and jalopy, and it doesn't work like kindergarten. We're not just playing games. We're serious people. I think you're all serious people. I don't think you could be here till 123 if you weren't serious people. This is serious business, and we're ready. And I, t- I tell you that I, I think I sent it out on a devotion a while ago, or maybe one of the teachings. It's time. I hear that ringing in my spirit every day now. It's time. It's time. Stop being afraid. Do the do's, gather together. If you fall down, if you end up face down in the mud, we'll all come and mud wrestle with you so that nobody knows. Stop being afraid. Are you guaranteed success? No. Naturally speaking, no. But you're not natural. If you use these principles, which are interwoven through the scripture, faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love, faith, hope, and love. It all works like that. You just got to really do it. And I tell you something, with my life, nothing has sped up my process of going from fear, dread, and selfishness to faith, hope, and love, other than the crises I got myself into by just going this way. Which work <laughs> really quite tragic. But you don't have to do all that because you have people around you. There's people who have gone this way. There's answers to your questions. You just have to go home and do what I told you to do last time if you didn't do it. Get your business plan on a piece of paper. Put your hand over your heart and say, Jesus, Jesus I, know I know you've transformed everything, you've transformed everything. Simply, by me simply by showing me the world you've created, world you've created. A, playground for me a playground for me and my business and you've showed me how to play to win. Jesus, you've given me 
an extraordinary amount of things. Today it's my pledge. I will use those things to build the kingdom and glorify the awesome name of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory to God.